been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why, just know that the big one has hit, okay? So what do we do? There are three important steps that I want you to remember. Step one, get inside fast. You, your friends, your family, get inside. And no, staying in the car is not an option. You need to get into a building and move away from the windows. Step two, stay inside. Shut all doors and windows. Have a basement? Head there. If you don't have one, get as far into the middle of the building as possible. If you were outside after the blast, get clean immediately. Remove and bag all outer clothing to keep radioactive dust or ash away from your body. Step three, stay tuned. Follow media for more information. Don't forget to sign up for Notify NYC for official alerts and updates. And don't go outside until officials say it's safe. All right, you've got this. So, there's been a nuclear attack. Um, that has just got to be the best opening to a PSA of all time. It, it's, it feels like a really awesome post-apocalyptic 70s novel beginning or something like that. Like, <laughs> So there's been a nuclear attack, don't ask me how, but the big one is hit. And then like we're going to get a really sick gonzo. Um, that actually is totally what that sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I was just minding my business, but <laughs> right. yeah, I was just smoking a cigar and hanging out with you know some strange character when the big one hit. And this is this novel is going to be <laughs> what ensued in the next forty-eight it's, hours. It's the pitch meeting to Omega Man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and, yeah. and you, it felt like psychedelic, like because there's that weird <laughs> green screen that she's in front of, and there's like warping. I never actually watched the whole thing. That was until now. That was pretty crazy. Yeah, I also think uh, Heraclitus Blackett in the in the chat is correct. I, I wondered about that too. What exactly are you supposed to be tuned into? Like you, you're supposed to stay tuned to the news for information. I mean, what's the, like, take me through the logistics of this? Like, like there's like a radio station that'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. There's gonna be one radio station. You know, it's it's like an AM station uh, at the edge of Long Island. Um, <laughs> It'll it'll cover New York, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's kind of funny actually. So I have been on a couple times, like once to promote my book, and then once just randomly a couple weeks ago, a late night radio station in Staten Island, and I'm just imagining that being the only thing that's still there right after uh, after the big one hits. I think Ben, you become an emergency responder then, and then you got to say like, "Don't ask me how." But the big one is, hey, I know what you're. I know what you're going to ask. I know what your next question is. What happened? None of that matters now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. So stay <laughs> tuned to all of your favorite left podcasts, and they'll they'll let you know what to do. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, there uh, there is a video that uh, was re- recently came out from our collective grandfather, Bernie Sanders. Uh, where he, um, you know, it, it let's 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 just say there's like a thematic uh, thread here uh, to uh, you know being in a in a world where 
there are the biggest tensions between Russia and the United States since the Cold War. They're running World War Three, <laughs> like the city of New York is running World War Three PSAs. And the question uh, that Senator Sanders is asking in this clip, if we've got that ready. A question from probably mispronouncing it, Gemma. And she, she writes, uh, I have found it hard to avoid doomerism. Doomerism. How do I avoid losing all hope? Uh, and then another question that comes from Patrick, is it ever going to get any better? Should I maintain any will to live? Now that's a little bit makes me nervous, Patrick. Yes, you should maintain a will to live. And, you know, look, these are very tough times. And I think what we have to do is be honest about it and say these are tough times. But these are not the only tough times. This country has experience, or the American people have experience, or the world has experience, you know? The 1930s, uh, 25 during the Depression, 25% of people in this country were unemployed. You know, you had children working in fields, children not going to school, working in fields, in factories. Uh, and, um, you know, in 1941, when we had to deal with both Japan and, and, and Germany, and, and the rise of Nazism and Japanese imperialism. We weren't prepared to do that in 1941, but the country got its act together and literally in a few years built the economy and, and, and the armed forces that we needed to save the world from Nazism. So, you know, these are all tough times, but it is not appropriate uh, for us to live in despair because this, all of this is about is not just us, it is about our kids. I have four kids. I have seven grandchildren, and you do too. And we are fighting for not just ourselves, but for uh, the, you know, the future and, and future generations. Um, so it seems to me that despair is is not an option. This is tough stuff, and the victories are not going to be easy. We are facing enormous, enormously powerful opposition. But throughout history, that has been the case. You know, people have faced enormous opposition and things change. Things get better. So, uh, you know, and all we can continue to do is uh, to keep uh, fighting. So there's a lot that you could say about that clip, uh, but my personal favorite thing about it, just on, this, on an aesthetic level, is Bernie Sanders saying the word doomerism as if he's um, trying to say his first word in a new language? Doomerism. <laughs> and, and like, like that—that's uh, even funnier because before he's just like, uh, "We got, we got a a, a a message from Gemma." I don't think I got your name right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gemma so, uh, is worried about Gemma. Gemma is worried about doomerism. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, um, this is petty, but I do like Bernie claiming that I have, uh, four children and seven grandchildren. He says, <laughs> yeah, we I all do. <laughs> We've all got four <laughs> children and seven <laughs> grandchildren. Man, yeah. I, I must be a bad parent because I can't, I've lost <laughs> two of them. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a lot to that, but, um, I mean, from someone on their last, you know, at their last thread, just, uh sending a message to Bernie being like, should I keep living? I mean, I think I could, I could imagine myself getting to that point. Honestly, I think Bernie might be the person that I would, I would turn to in that situation. But yeah, there's, I don't, I, there's a lot to unpack there. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, I mean, I, I recently, uh, when I was in Baltimore for the Red Emma's event, I had lunch with an old friend who lives there now. And he was describing how he got this opportunity to uh, teach in Israel for a year. And uh, while he was, you know, struggling about whether or not to take the opportunity, you know, because for obvious reasons having to do with, you know, Palestinians and all that, um, he uh, he asked, he sent Noam Chomsky an email asking if he thought it was okay to uh, to go teach in Israel. Uh, for the record, his, the answer was yes, it's fine. But uh, but I, I always like that the idea that it's like you know. Um, you know, it's it's like a Hasidic man asking his Rebbe, you know, gonna gonna see what Chomsky thinks about it, you know. <laughs> but uh, that's a maybe an even more extreme example, you know. It's like, uh, do I have anything to live for? You know, who am I gonna talk to about this? A priest, a therapist, Bernie? It, it sounds like a beginning of one of those parables. Like a man is at the end of his wits, so he goes to the only man he could think to ask, Bernie Sanders, <laughs> or like Pagliacci, where it's like, but doctor, I am Bernie. <laughs> I like this. Bernie, my cousin is a Tulsi self. What do I do? <laughs> a col- uh, a yes. Tulsi self. I, I, I see here he is a uh, Tulsi cell. <laughs> From uh, Milkbone Crusader 6. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I think that, I mean, there, there is something that is very, um, you know, wholesome and right about that. Uh, that. That set of answers. I mean, not just the part where Bertie was freaked out about the guy said he wasn't sure if he had the will to live. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I think in general, right. There's, there's something that's very wholesome and right about that. And, you know, and I think he's the man certainly practicing what he, what he preaches, you know, that there's like, he essentially, you know, essentially since 2015, right. Which is when he first came to national prominence, you know, he hasn't stopped doing exactly what he's been doing the whole time. Right. The, um, I mean, he still kind of acts like he's running for president, right? You know, and uh, and he's always like, certainly, if you follow his, uh, you know, his Twitter account, which some people, you know, I've seen sort of sneer at because like he spent so much time sort of, you know, doing kind of very basic lefty talking points on it. Although I actually think that's incredibly useful because, you know, whatever. I mean, this is, um, you know, if you've got a giant megaphone, this is the first time. You know, like every time you hit post, right? I mean, this is the first time somebody said that point. Uh, so I actually do see value to that. But the other thing I love is he's always posting like, I'm, I'm not going to try to do the Bernie accent, but like, uh, you know, he's always posting like, you know, the workers at Kroger and Mesquite in Michigan or, you know, are trying to get a fair contract, you know, and I completely support them in this fight. You know, it's like some like tiny, super obscure you know, worker struggle that's going on somewhere, you know, it's like he, he, he just seems to like every time one crosses his radar, right. You know, he, he says something about it, right. I mean, if they, you know, if, if, uh, if something big happens, he'll, he'll probably go there in person. And, you know, and I think that that's, I, I mean, I'm not sure I have anything too profound to say about this, but I think that, you know, I think it's the right mindset, right. That like you, you know, you keep on plugging and like, you're real about the fact that, you know, you've experienced significant defeats. Um, but also, right. Like you don't know, uh, when you're going to have, you know, you don't know when you're going to have new openings, right. I mean, you have no idea like the, 
you know, last seven years has been a nonstop parade of shit that I certainly didn't see come in. Right. I don't know anybody who did really, um, you know, maybe, uh, the, uh, you know, maybe Mike Davis a little bit, you know, but like, um, other than him, right. I, I don't know anybody who is, who's predicted most of the, you know, almost any of the things that have happened in the last 70 years, right. Some of them good, most of them bad, but like all unpredictable, right? So you don't know when there are going to be new openings, and you know, and I and I think you have to, you know, go into it with the mindset that you know the the thing that you can do that makes yourself useful is certainly not sort of bemoaning, bemoaning it and withdrawing. I mean, if you want to do that, be quiet about it, you know. But uh, you know, so you're not demoralizing anybody else, you know. I mean, it's it's sort of continuing to, um, you know continuing to uh to agitate for the things you care about and also you know i mean i I think that point about child labor and the depression and all that was very on point right that like it's you know it's very easy to say like you know look at all the many genuinely horrible things that have happened and you know and and react in a certain way about it but i mean it's like you know i mean legitimately those things they talk about weren't that long ago and um you know, I mean, in the historical broad scheme of things, you know, I mean, we've like child labor has been over for about 15 minutes. So, you know, I mean, there, there's are like significant victories that have happened and, you know, you could win more in the future and all of that. Okay. Uh, before we completely leave our theme here from the, uh, from the cold open and from the Bernie clip, let's, uh, let's do a few minutes of uh, cannibalistic mutants. Uh so uh, we, uh, if we, uh, if we have that, uh, if we have that ready, um, the last two, of course, have been real things. That was a real video from uh, from Bernie Sanders, and uh, uh, terrifyingly, that was a real PSA uh, from uh, from the city of New York. But uh, this um, uh, this is a discussion of fictional cannibalistic mutants. So, for give them an argument, patrons, uh, I. Uh, got together with the two guys that I most like to talk about movies with, uh, Jason Miles and Trey Reed. Um, and uh, we, uh, we talked about The Hills Have Eyes and many, many, many other things because these discussions are always incredibly digressive. I figure anybody who's still watching them, that's part of the charm. But uh, let's, uh, let's just do a, you know, let's just do a few minutes of that. Little preview. All right. I am joined by Trey Reed and Jason Miles, uh, who I have been talking to for about an hour. So I figured we should start recording. Uh, got into a whole thing about uh, how much everybody loves Kurt Hammond, and uh, you know, he's the greatest guitarist of all time, and you know, and all of, all of this stuff. Um, uh, although Dave and although Dave Mustaine is uh, is is the most uh, courageous one because because of his. Uh, uh, his ability to survive in the music industry as as a Trump supporter, so um, <laughs> and, a, and, a, and an Obama uh, birther, <laughs> probably. Yeah, yeah, actually, not <laughs> yeah, sad. It broke my heart, Ben. You don't understand. That was like me finding out Santa Claus was a racist. <laughs> well, and it's it's harder to buy used CDs now because who even has a CD player? Like it, what there was a time where you could buy the music of artists you hated, but yeah. not feel guilty about it. Like you hated their politics, but loved their art, but you yeah. couldn't you wouldn't feel guilty about it because you could just buy it used, so they wouldn't get the money. Yeah. Just buy <laughs> own R. Kelly's trap in the closet. Um, I wouldn't give him the money, 
But that song was that opera, whatever R and B opera, whatever it was, was so ridiculous that I had to own it, and I was able to buy a used CD. You can't buy a used digital download, right? I mean, <laughs> so there's no escape hatch anymore. You just watch it on YouTube for free, I guess. I'd still enjoy the greatest Megadeth song from one of the best thrash albums of all time, which is "Peace Sells But Who's Buying." Good morning, Black Friday. Mm-hmm. One of the most tasteful solos you will hear by chris poland and a very very intricate rhythm part by uh, dave mustaine that just kind of almost has no structure so it's but it works together so beautifully um so i will always love him for that and despise him for his obama album Fair enough. that's good yeah i endorse that for what it's worth Oh, Chris so, speaking of Obama, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Obama said that you know there are people in parts of the country who are clinging to their 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 guns and their religion and uh, and their cannibalism. So uh, let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about the uh, let's talk about the hills have eyes. Talk about uh, what's great. <laughs> 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 I, I watched I watched High Tension first. Yeah. Cuz I watched it in the order that I remember watching it back in the day and I remember I bought High Tension. I don't know if you guys had Suncoast where you're from. Oh yeah. Remember I don't Suncoast recall that, but I've seen Yeah, I I I remember actually thinking it was weird that like every mall that I was ever at would always have like the same. I remember it was always like the Suncoast was like always by the orange Julius or something. There's like this little wave. They're all clustered. You know? <laughs> the, uh, the... So no one saw you buy weird anime porn. Uh, <laughs> but I bought, I bought high tension just because it was in the horror section. Yeah. And I put it in and I was like, and you know, it's pr- much like this movie. It moves the same, same director, right? And it moves the same way. And uh, it was a really hard watch. Like you get done watching it and you're just, you feel uneasy. And I, and then I watched uh, Hills Have Eyes at midnight, my time. Mm-hmm. I was like, let me rewatch it. I remember the movie very well, but let me rewatch it anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had the worst nightmare <laughs> waking up, uh, and much like it did when I first saw it on Kate. No, when I when I rented it when it came out, maybe like oh seven. Totally, totally stays with you. It's an extremely unsettling movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it mixes gore and suspense so well. Um, but uh, one of one of the few remakes, because to me it starts off the era of the remake, mm-hmm. right? Um, if Marvel can uh, relaunch their franchise with an unknown character that never had his own book and blade, then the remake genre is. Sh- you know, does something similar by starting off with a movie not too many people saw from the 70s, The Hills Have Eyes. And damn, I mean, even from setting it in Morocco. Mm. Those opening shots. Well, it's a, I thought it was a better movie than High Attention. I, I may have seen High Attention first, but I, but I think my takeaway from High Attention was, um, like you, I thought it was disturbing, but I, there was almost a what the hell was that? There was <laughs> an intensity to it. It didn't seem to have a lot of point by contrast the hills have eyes um has a similar intensity and uh, interestingly enough infuses in a kind of 
Iraq war has gone bad kind of way, a kind of social commentary that you could only get from a Frenchman or at least a non-American, right? I mean, it's that's bound up into this horror film that centers on people um, who've been mutated by the legacy of the, of the American uh, U.S. weapons program. Yeah, so I had, yeah, so I'd never seen this before, night before last. I saw the original, mm -hmm. the Wes Craven one, I don't know, several years ago. I was definitely still living in New Jersey. I don't remember exactly, but um, I, and you know, and I thought it was good. I mean, I, I don't think it was his best movie or anything, but I thought it was good. Um, and I will admit, I don't remember it very well. Um, I mean, I, I remember moments from uh, from the original from the original movie uh and yeah this 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 really surprised me and, and this this seemed like a much better movie uh than uh, than the original which is which is weird right because it's a because it's a much later um i mean i love i love wes craven i i'm a big uh you know big fan of the first nightmare on elm street movie uh you know i i have um uh you know, I, I won't, uh, I won't, I won't court cancellation by, uh, you know, by, by talking about the snake and the rainbow. But they have a, uh, you know, but like, you know, but the man, uh, the man made a lot of good movies. Uh, the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, when it was remade, was was a abomination in the sight of God. You know, that like was was just like the, you know, like that 2010 Nightmare on Elm Street is one of the worst things that's ever been perpetrated. Uh, but. Uh, <laughs> But this was great, and this was a much, much more intense movie. But you can tell, like right away, right, like the uh, the opening, uh, the opening minutes, right, there are uh, uh, there's some kind of like scientific survey team or something out in the out in the desert, and then you see them within like two minutes. You see them being like harpooned, and yeah. uh, they think, "Oh my god, what am I watching right now?" Yeah. That's how, yeah, that's how I felt uh, because I forgot the original. I think I saw the original on like USA. Remember oh, USA? Was around this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, the original didn't really, I think almost seemed yeah. campy. Yeah. And when you watch yeah. this remake, it's like, this is no camp. Mm -hmm. This is hitting you over the head mm -hmm. in the first few minutes and you don't see what the people look like for actually quite some time in the film, which I thought was even more uh, unsettling about the whole thing. Right? Because we watch horror movies and we watch the first five minutes. We're like, that guy's going to die. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's Elf gotten harder really... though, since we moved away from the cliche of killing the black guy first. <laughs> Where was the black guy? Well, no, I'm saying that you used to be able to just, oh, just identify. Part. Or, you know, yeah, just because yeah. the black dude is there, he's out, right? You know, yeah, it's it funny. Was... Someone actually dispelled that myth that the black guy dies first in the um, in horror, horror war. Yeah, he doesn't. Even in like night, or was it uh, Friday Thirteenth when dude is singing in the toilet? Ooh, baby, ooh, baby. Because I always sing to my girlfriend when I'm taking a shit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sarcasm yes <laughs> oh 
All right. Um, so we just learned something important about Jason at the uh, at the end of that. Um, you know, he tries to walk it back and say it's sarcasm, but yeah. Um, ben, you uh, you you messaged me saying that was a good cutoff point, and I was already ending it there. So we're like, we're we're starting oh, to be in sync. Like uh, there yeah. was no that was no per, no better place than Jason saying that. Uh, we I knew I had to cut it there because people people are going to need more, and they're going to need to become patrons after seeing that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, it's it's a it's a fun discussion. Uh, Jason uh, has this like works up this bit that he spends a lot of time on later in the episode, uh, where he's doing this uh, imitation of how he's decided. You know, because I uh, he asked if I went fishing with my dad, and I said, "Well, I went fishing sometimes, but like you know, like but it, but not with my dad," and he. Uh, and he did, he like developed this whole character for my dad and how he interacted with me and sort of turned him into a sociopathic wasp, you know? So it's, uh, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting discussion. Um, somebody, uh, somebody in the chat, uh, said, uh, the, uh, well, the, the most incorrect thing that's ever been said in the chat, which is the nightmare at Elm street doesn't uh, hold up the original, you know, is a brilliant movie, but, um, but I also saw the most, um, GTA fan possible comment in the chat, which I can't find now, but from uh, from somebody who says that they uh, they oh no here we go here we go I found it uh, that they uh, um to think I missed the first twenty minutes because I was arguing with an ANCAP so uh, the uh, you know person cannot tear themselves away from uh, from the argument they're having with the libertarian to watch the show that's uh that's a gta viewer right there core brand proposition right there <laughs> yeah, exactly oh uh, um all right all right so uh so i do want to uh talk about a few couple things while we're waiting for uh for adam to show up uh, I do want to talk in a second about uh, who Adam is and why we're having him on. Uh, and uh, before that, I want to just, um, you know, tease uh, coming attractions a little bit. I do not have details yet, um, or else we would have a whole thing with a graphic and, you know, we probably would have done a whole bit on it. But it is tentatively looking like we and um, and also Jason um you know also you know also this is revolution we'll be uh, be doing a live show in los angeles in late october mid to late october so um you know i will i will fill in with more details as that comes together and once we uh, once we get definite about that uh but uh before that i want to uh talk about adam proctor so uh you know the man the myth um the uh, the podcaster and uh, and why uh, we are having him on the show. So I have known Adam uh, for a long time, um, and I was actually uh, his co-host on the show that he started, uh, Dead Pundit Society, um, a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, I, I did a uh, I did a run uh, doing that, uh, and even before I was co-hosted it, you know, that show was really important to me. It was, was a big influence on my political development. Um, and, you know, my interactions with Adam were, um, and he's also, 
And I should say, actually, you know, we talked about this a little bit. Anybody who watched the Left Reckoning post game last week, uh, we talked a little bit about this a little bit on there. But I would say that Adam's been an influence on my politics in at least three ways. Uh, one is directly from knowing him and from listening to his show before I even really knew him, you know, and started coming on as a guest and was then co-hosting. Uh, but also in two other ways, right? One of which is that I think he was an influence over the years on the politics of some of the core people at Jacobin. Uh, and um, and then, you know, on me in that indirect way from there. And then the third one is uh, is that the the man, you know, is sort of, I think underappreciated in, uh, in, in tellings of this legend, but I think the man was a big influence on the politics of the late Michael Brooks we were talking about last week. So uh, he's definitely the first person who said the name Adolf Reed to, uh, to Michael. Um, and, you know, and I think a lot of the things that Michael was coming around to, especially in the last like year of his life, you know, especially the last few months and the stuff we're talking about at the end, you know, I mean, it's like, I think, um, you know, I think the relationship that he had with Adam is, is, uh, you know, is definitely part of that. Right. So, um, so this is somebody who, you know, I mean, he's, you know, like, I think he's a very, um, approachably normal guy. Uh, you know, like the, uh, they used to say about, uh, presidential candidates, right. You can have a beer with him, but, uh, but he's also, uh, you know, he's also a, uh, I don't know, I, I, I'm thinking here about uh, my all-time favorite understated diss, which is uh, when um, Cordell West was on the Michael Brooks show, and uh, they're talking about, um, well, the guy we're going to be talking about in a minute, Jordan Peterson, and the other members of the so-called intellectual dark web, and West said, well, these aren't the most profound brothers, which I think for Cordell West is like, equivalent of saying that like these are the worst pieces of shit he's ever heard of right you know well these aren't the most profound brothers so uh adam is a profound brother uh so uh it has been too long so we've talked out air adam how you doing appreciate it much appreciated uh yeah i appreciated the shout out uh during the michael burke's tribute uh just the other day but uh i, I realized that you know and rightfully so you guys were talking to me like i was a lost boy like the like whose uh, mugshot <laughs> should be featured uh, like on the side of like a, a milk uh a milk carton so Whatever i'm happy to, i guess Adam. which is crazy because i i see myself every day i haven't gone anywhere as far as i'm concerned but i can totally understand since dead pundits went off the air about it over a year ago uh mm. I've, I've been a, maybe missing an action so i'm glad i'm glad to be back yeah absolutely yeah. Uh, so, uh, the reason that, you know, it's not the only thing I want to talk to you about, you know, I hope if we, if we get a chance, we can touch on a couple of other things, but the sort of primary thing we're going to talk about tonight is something that we have talked extensively about in this show, but not necessarily always from the angle that I think you're interested in presenting, right? Which, so, um, uh, so as we've noted here before, we've been watching it on the Thursday night debate breakdowns, watching the whole thing. You know, the um, uh, Jordan Peterson recently poked his head out from, you know, wherever it was uh, and uh, and did something he doesn't do very often. Uh, last time was about three years ago, which was talked to a leftist, um, Kyle, uh, Kyle Kalinske. And I think that, you know, you can kind of correct me, right? But I think that you're like your big thought about this, right. From, from watching that is like something like this, right. Like 
Kyle's a good dude. He's a useful, he's like a politically useful figure. Uh, you know, he's, he's somebody who makes a positive contribution. And there are good things about what he does in that debate, discussion, whatever. Uh, you know, I, I think the I think the difference in demeanor maybe between him and Jordan Peterson is probably good optics. Uh, but because um, because he's like very calm and you know seems to kind of like it like him and Peterson's still like freaking out every two minutes. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, I think uh, Kalinsky had uh, COVID when during the interview. Am I right? He's, he's maybe. <laughs> oh, I think he actually maybe, did. Yeah. Him, I mean, cut the guy a little bit of slack. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, I mean, first of all, can you guys hear me? Okay, this is the first time I broke out the mic in like a year. Yeah, yeah, coming yeah, through, coming loud, through and clear. loud and clear. Yep. Good. I set this little studio space up at the last minute. And I realized as soon as you guys put me on the air, I look like a fucking guitar dad. Like I've got the Hendrix poster back there. Like I just happen to be wearing an Eric Clapton shirt all day. And like, <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna play some tunes later if you guys are down with that. Maybe uh, you know do some Hendrix or some uh, Zeppelin. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, Kalinsky. I think we should position Kalinsky on yeah. the left because one thing I want to be really crystal clear that I'm not interested in doing at all. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I stepped away from kind of uh, uh, overt public left politics for a little while. Mm-hmm. Kind of Lenin goes back to the library type of moment for me is because I f- I'm really disenchanted with the kind of left style. Uh, yeah. and, and, and that it's, it's very, um, it's kind of histrionic, right? And, and even, even amongst the lefties uh, that I love and, and I think are doing amazing work. I mean, say like mm-hmm. uh, Crystal and uh, Cigar. Mm-hmm. I mean, a Cigar, not a lefty, but nah, he's fine. He's fine. Like I'd give him yeah. a noogie if I saw him, right? You know, but he's fine. Uh, but uh, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, and you won't believe what this thing did, and that, and it's very uh, definitive. And, and I, I just, I've just so fallen out of love with that lately. And I love Crystal; she's fantastic. Quite honestly, I would have loved to see her join Kyle to uh, to grill mm-hmm. Peterson. I'm sure she was would have been chomping at the bit, although I'm not quite sure Jordan would have taken to a woman uh, uh, correcting him very, very kindly. <laughs> no, he probably wouldn't have liked that. <laughs> he, he certainly does not have a good history of any woman uh, correcting him or speaking to any woman at all, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but well, uh, yeah, that style. His, and- he has his daughter on when he wants to talk about, you know, the, how like the Sports Illustrated yeah. model was odd and, you know, other, other yeah, important really insights like that. Awkward. As the kids say, cringe. Are they still saying it? I don't know. By the time I say it, they're not saying it anymore. But Kalinsky's a good guy, and and but I just don't. I don't want to. I want to fall prey like, oh, he's you know he's insufficiently leftist, or he's flawed in this like kind of uh, footnotey Marxological way. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I was a grad student for long enough. Uh, I, I'm just a layabout these days. I used to be a layabout podcast. I'm just a layabout, so I don't want to get into that. But 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 Kalinsky's yeah, should, a chunky should, guy. I should say, by the way, while we're. Uh while we're recounting the legend of lost boy, Adam Proctor, uh, that, um, when he says he's a, uh, he was a graduate student, right? Like, like what, what he means specifically, and if this doesn't mean anything to you, then you should do, do like Lenin and go to the library is they studied with, uh, Leo Panich, uh, rest in peace, Did. um, yeah. who, uh, who we should actually have an entire discussion on sometime. But I mean, I think if you want to read sort of like, um, smart analyses of, the world today and what in social strategy, you know, in a 21st century context, that's somebody that everybody should be reading. But, um, but yeah, yeah. Pour, pour one out. I would say pour it, pour a little, um, uh, Leo would, would just pour a little truly out for our boy, Leo here. He would absolutely own me in his, uh, sardonic Canadian way for drinking a, uh, a seltzer beverage instead of a proper beer. But anyway, I digress. 
Um, yes, I was a grad student, lucky to study under Leo. Um, I have that heritage, but I've also had the the luxury, I'll say luxury of sort of stepping away from all of that. And I don't mean him and his legacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, just mm-hmm. stepping away from the muck and the mire for the past year or two mm-hmm. and uh, sort of having a fresh perspective about it. So I have no interest in, in, in uh, you know, defaming Kyle or saying he's insufficiently this or that because he's a chomps. He's exactly who he says he is. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's a Chomsky guy. And I know you are as well, Ben, for all the right reasons. So am I, I mean, who didn't come up on Chomsky's sure. uh, anti-war kind of anti, uh, you know, imperialist critique, if you're a, a certain kind of nineties, 2000 kid. Uh, but you know, he, he was a little, maybe poorly suited to do what, you know, I wish he would have done, which is what we do in these, you know, commentaries. We like, <laughs> yeah. like the puppet, we, we take, we sort of shove our hand up their ass and try to move their mouth, you know, uh, in, in just the right ways, you know, that things that we would have said. Uh, uh, so yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I was a progressive. And, and I mean, what's your take on that? What did, I mean, Kyle's yeah. progressivism is worth kind of maybe starting. Yeah, no, I think that's probably worth taking a minute on. I mean, I think that um, Kyle, and this is not a diss, as you say, I mean, this is exactly what he would say about himself, right? I mean, like Kyle um, is not and would not claim to be anything like any sort of Marxist. Uh, he uh, He's somebody who, yeah, I mean, he started doing this like his... Uh, I mean, his his Twitter handle is still secular talk, uh, which uh, you know, because because he he started doing this during the new atheism era, and he was this he was like the guy, you know, his whole thing was like, oh yeah, I really like Richard Dawkins, and I also really like Noam Chomsky, and you know, and and I I'm like kind of into politics, and he um, and you know, and, and he's somebody. In fact, I don't know if it's going to be in the part that we're gonna, you know one of the parts we're going to watch tonight, you know, but there's a point in this discussion with with Jordan Peterson where he he sort of indicates that he thinks that like um nordic style social democracy is like kind of the end in itself right from his perspective on on um mm-hmm. you know i mean so so i think that like he's somebody who wants that and then has you know chomsky kinds of views about foreign policy uh mm-hmm. and you know that's i mean whatever i mean i actually think that's great right i mean like that's a uh, that's that's a like those two things i mean like if you uh if you're on board with with both of those i mean you're you're uh you know grading on the curve that you got to grade on you know if you're gonna live in the world right i mean like that's that's uh, he, he, he operates on that like 0.2 percent slice of the political spectrum that we operate on so like who are we right i mean that's one yeah, thing yeah. i'm just after a year year and a half away from the the daily weekly fray i've just grown to appreciate like if i can just find a a guy or gal with a bernie sticker like we're homies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this, I mean, and I, I, yet I still have my critique and we're going to lay it down, but I think Kyle's no. actually quite consistent. Kyle's quite, he's, he's quite consistent. I mean, he's a, he's anti-corruption mm-hmm. where we see sort of systemic causation mm-hmm. and kind of deep historical um, uh, uh, sort of materialist frameworks that are playing out in contradictory ways. Uh, yeah. He sees kind of elites kind of colluding and, and, and being corrupt and, um, I mean, it's certainly kind of hard to deny in some ways, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not that that's uh, wrong, but it's 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 it's, it's uh, insufficient it's for sure. And, and when think, and, uh, and when you're going after somebody like Jordan Peterson, uh, who's probably you know has his blood sugar spiking from only eating meat for the past two years, uh, he needs a donut. Really, the guy he just seemed kind of cranky, to be honest with you. But yeah, that's what uh, happens yeah. to Canadians when they don't have Tim Hortons. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, he needed yeah. ten bits. Just a couple ten bits would have probably made him a lot more delightful. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's right. So I think that, like, again, I think that, like, all the stuff that Kyle cares about the most, I think, is correct. I think, 
as you say, from our perspective, it's insufficient. And, um, and this, and this really gets into the angle, right. That we're going to talk about here, right. Cause, cause the sort of primary purpose, you know, point of the exercise here, right. Isn't to criticize Kyle Kalinske. It's to sort of say like, well, here's the, uh, here's the important thing that, you know, nobody's kind of talking about in this conversation, but that we think that is like the sort of an important dimension, right. To what's wrong with, with a lot of what Jordan Peterson is saying here, which kind of goes to the comment in the chat earlier. It's like about anybody who's watches this channel, right. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's how, how much, how much, how much do you need to see Jordan Peterson debunked? Fair enough. But I think that they, I think that the particular angle, right. For tonight, um, is uh, that you want to talk about, you know, and, and that excites me and my, you know, in my strange nerdy heart, right, is uh, is about... That, that nerd shit, that, as uh, Michael Brooks would have put it, our, 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 our love for nerd shit. Anyway, I, I just, I'm going to be yeah. quoting Michael constantly tonight. I apologize. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, yeah, so I want to do some nerd shit about political economy because there's a lot of stuff about capitalism that is uh, sometimes very explicit in some of these clips that we're going to watch and is sometimes kind of in the background. But I, I think it, it sort of gets to the sort of important extra dimension of what's wrong with what Peterson is saying that's that's not kind of directly addressed in the conversation. So, um, so Jake, I know we have a bunch of these, but could we do the one... Um, I, I'm not sure what, where you've got it queued up right now, but could we do the... Uh, could we do the Marx one? That might be the... Actually, which which one and which one is it is it queued up to right now? Um, right now it is queued up to how do you determine need? But we could go to we could we could we have one on uh, Marx's insights on, on capitalism and inequality. Yeah, I think that might be I think that might be the best one to start with the capitalism and inequality. Yeah, yeah. And, and and Peterson foregrounds even this clip, or maybe we're going to hear it, but with this this notion that you know, and it's funny because Peterson comes out swinging going after Marx before Kyle ever brings it up, which is a classic sort of uh, Peterson move to try to catch his opponent, you know, wrong footed right from the jump. And he says, you know, uh, Marx's ideas were disastrous wherever they were implemented, uh, and and with no sort of conflating Marx's ideas with the way they were implemented, which is just like some freshman level shit that I'm sure you see in your classroom, uh, used to see in your classroom, Ben. Anyway. Let's roll that beautiful bean footage. Or any of his critiques of capitalism that you think have merit? Well, the idea that capitalism produces inequality is clearly true. But Mm. Marx didn't think that up. I mean, that's been known forever. It says in the Gospels that the poor will always be with us. I mean, inequality is an unbelievably pervasive economic problem. The problem with Marx's critique, and the left-wingers should take this seriously, and I mean seriously, and they don't. So imagine that part of the reason that you're left-wing, I don't mean you specifically, but possibly you, because you're also somewhat higher in compassion, you said, in agreeableness. The lefties are concerned about the detrimental effects of inequality, say unequal distribution of capital and financial resources in particular, although there's all sorts of inequalities of distribution. And they are right to be concerned about that because when equality becomes excessive, it tends to destabilize societies. So we know, for example, that in neighborhoods where movement up the socioeconomic hierarchy is blocked and difficult, and there's quite an extreme range between poor and rich, that young men tend to become violent because that's one of the ways they can attain status. 
when they can't attain it in a legitimate, let's say, and productive status competition. And so, and every society that's ever existed have, has had to deal with the potential negative consequences of inequality. So back in Old Testament times, the Hebrews had a jubilee every seven years. I think it was the jubilee, but it doesn't matter. Um, where debts were erased mm. and forgiven. And the reason for that was that capital, wealth, tends to accumulate in the hands of a smaller and smaller number of people. Now, Marx was right in that diagnosis, although he did not, he was not the originator of that idea by any stretch of the imagination. But laying at the feet of capitalism is, it's preposterous and it understates the magnitude of the problem. All right, I'm going to do the... If you're uh, concerned uh, about inequality... And Sam Cedar thing. Stop, stop. Okay. Cut, cut that beautiful bean footage. Uh, first of all, let's say uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Peterson uh, owes uh, the late David Graeber uh, some, uh, I don't know, royalties for that little spiel. Because if that's not uh, from Graeber's uh, debt book, what is it, 5,000 five years of history mm -hmm. debt, that massive... Uh, debt the uh, first 5,000 years, I think. Yeah, that massive doorstop of a book. And it's funny because, I mean, I'm actually going to go at Peterson the same reason I went at the late David Graeber, uh, rest in peace, uh, for, for being uh, insufficiently historical and specific about the birth of capitalism and, and why exactly capitalism is is different. Um, and, and, you know, he's dodging Marx's fundamental critique here. And he's, he's sort of replaying a lot of, I mean, I, I mean, ba Peterson basically just gave like that, like a uh, like a fourteen year old fedora wearing neck bearded kid online on Reddit, like uh, you know th this that version of like historical materialism without realizing that there's a thing called historical materialism, basically saying that you know the wealth in societies uh, you know are distributed in equal and, and, and comprise a very critical component of how those societies are ordered and how they hang together or don't hang together. And he's talking about one specific way that uh, it was sort of meant to square that circle with these debt jubilees to try to prevent that kind of inequality from upturning. Uh, the kind of more uh, communal uh, bonds of those smaller kind of clan networks in those in those eras, and um, but he's doing exactly I, in my estimation. And to start to gloss over my critique of Graeber, but yeah, he's, we're not talking specifically about capitalism. Marx's insight about capitalism, which is absolutely critical for every leftist to understand, and I don't care if you read any Marx, you don't have to; it's fine. Uh, but but know this: Marx marveled at capitalism. And in, in, in his critique of capitalism was not that it produces inequality. He was not Mark would have never been such an idiot to believe that this was the first political economic system where that happened. Well, actually, actually I'm just did I'm say just, I'm just gonna just gonna put in parenthetically here that not only did yeah. not, Mark, Marx not say that capitalism was the only system to produce inequality, um, but um, or even that it was the first system to produce class inequality, but right. uh, but like the the one Marx book that. Jordan Peterson is on record as saying that he's read, right? The Communist Manifesto. You know, first line of the first chapter is all hitherto existing history is the history of class struggle, right? And then he starts like laid out all these examples about slaves and masters and, you know, and, and lords and peasants and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, it, it seems like he's, it seems like he's familiar with this fact about history. He's just cribbing off of, uh, yeah, the, the, the first few uh, paragraphs of uh, whatever manifesto uh, section he read in his uh, intro political theory course, because he's a Canadian. So they do still read Marx quite a bit in their uh, undergraduate uh, coursework. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the punchline here is that, I mean, that's well taken. The punchline here is that Marx said that capitalism was unique in one sense, and that it's the first political economic system where that inequality didn't fucking have to exist. Mm -hmm. That's critical. 
uh, slave societies. I mean, there's there's almost a kind of fatalistic way that Marx treats a lot of other political economic systems. In fact, it's got him in a lot of trouble. It's, it's got him called Orientalist in, in some circles. It's had him sort of, uh, you know, it's had him smeared as a, as a, a Europeanist, the sort of uh, European chauvinist, Eurocentric, all of these other sort of isms and ists that came up in the 1990s uh, academic, uh, you know, sphere. Uh, and, and, and they're unfair for a lot of reasons, but, but Marx believed one thing that the capitalism produced massive inequality, but it's for the first time in human history, inequality is absolutely unnecessary because we now have the means at our disposal and the forms of technology and, 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 uh, political economic organization, uh, to overcome that inequality, uh, because there's abundance, there's the first, the, for the first time we can have true abundance in a way that would, that would, uh, decouple uh, human beings and human labor from the toil that was kind of mandatory in previous political economic systems. Um, that's the real insight here. And Peterson's just completely oblivious to it, but that's not. Uh, yeah. Not I mean, sure. Marx, you know, Marx's analysis uh, of, you know, history is, you know, and, and really specifically of how like different economic systems arise and go away over time, right. Different modes of production, um, is that ultimately, you know, what's driving it forward, you know, I mean, the in an immediate sense, right? I mean, that's the you know, class struggle, but I mean, like what's ultimately driving it forward is the expansion of the forces of production, of the capacity of a society to uh, to produce stuff, right? So, so in this pre-capitalist right. class society, you know, maybe in Marx's analysis in like very early classless societies, you're, you're sort of, um, uh, communist by necessity that you don't have enough to go around to support a class of non-producers, but, you know, in pre-capitalist class societies you do, but, uh, only, uh, but only if you're using like really direct crass, like extraction, like guys with swords or, you know, putting people in chains or things like that to get them to produce all the time. Like you mentioned slave systems, you know, I think are like a really, right. you know, vivid example of that is thinking about how slavery worked in the Caribbean, right. That like, uh, that, yes. uh, um, you know, the French, when they're ruling San Domingue, right, you know, would, would uh, like the business model was just that you would constantly import slaves and they'd die pretty quickly. But like, you know, you had plenty more where, where they came from uh, because, uh, because you know, conditions were so bad. And under those circumstances, like, you know, I mean, you're really not going to get people to volunteer to uh, to do that, right? You know, that the, you're not going to produce all that stuff in a, you know, in an egalitarian way. But yeah, I mean, I'm just saying what you said, and you know, slightly differently, just because I think it's it's really important. I want to underline it, like um, mm -hmm. under you know the whole idea, right? Is like okay, so then you know, as capitalism comes up, you know, then you have you know you need this different kind of labor force that is uh, mobile, right? It's not it's not you know attached to a given piece of land, and mm -hmm. you know, and and so you can move around and make contracts with different employers, but like you. Also, there's the soft coercion of economic necessity making you do that, but right. um, you can't support yourself otherwise. But capitalism builds up the economic machinery to the extent that we actually could have an egalitarian society without, you know, whatever, retreating to the forest and, you know, and recreating hunter-gatherer bands or something. Like, we, we, could, we could have one with, you know, consistent with, you know, TV and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and like... Uh, and classic rock stations and, you know, and, and restaurants penicillin. and all that good stuff. What's that? Yeah. Penicillin, you know. Penicillin, <laughs> yeah. 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 
I mean, Marx does quite a bit of, he does quite glorify in ways he's been taken to task for, but he was sort of using the kind of historical or anthropology of his time, which was, of course, limited. Sure. It was a long time ago, folks. Uh, but, you know, sort of these communal societies that could sort of operated as a sort of Eden-esque kind of, you know, Garden of Eden sort of, you know, equality, often uh, matrilineal and uh, communal. And he said, yeah, look, they, those were great in a lot of ways, but, you know, they worked really fucking hard and they often died young. And they were also sometimes warlike, you know, and so, um, you know, we now have collective knowledge that circulates and also sort of a direct relationship, not only to the to production, which is toil that we've seen in past societies, but also sort of the knowledge and the, the means of production. Uh, workers are doing the work and they know about the work. And uh, and, and and that's something that emerges in a very specific historical moment. We got to talk about, I'm sorry, this nerd shit, this manorial uh, sort of uh, proto-capitalism that emerges mm -hmm. in under the English common law system, okay? In the fucking, you know, like 16, 1700s, it depends on who you ask, right? Uh, there's a mm -hmm. there's furious debate over this. Look up the, um, the Brenner debates if you're yes. inclined to dusty books, right? I mean, academics are going at each other's throats. Uh, Robert, Bob Brenner and the late Ellen uh, Makeson's Wood and and many other contributors. There's some young guys who are still doing work in the trenches of Marxology on this. And it's interesting, important stuff. I don't mean to to knock it, but but the, the, the gist is that, you know, capitalism is not some vague idea that sort of emerged all across the world. And we all just decided that private property and those sort of, uh, you know, kind of uh, ownership relations uh, resulting from, uh, you know, labor would just prevail. It was a historically institutionally specific mode of production that emerges when uh, 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 common lands are um, enclosed, which means that lands that were previously under a full more feudal kind of peasant driven system in under English manorial sort of pre-capitalism were enclosed uh, uh, by the crown. Uh, and by the emerging kind of bourgeoisie. And, and this is when you have the emergence of private property separate from, you know, the kind of uh, lordships and other kind of uh, feudal arrangements. Um, why do I immediately, immediately go back to Bridgerton? This is where I've been at for the past year, Ben, not, not in dusty books, uh, Bridgerton, but there's no lords and ladies anymore. There are rich land, land owning capitalists who now need to hire labor. So for the first time in human history, you had this emergent class of, 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 of sort of cap proto-capitalist, capitalist, bourgeoisie, as Marx called them, uh, who's, who, who were champions for a brief moment of the rights of the former peasant class. Why? They didn't want them to be peasants anymore. They didn't want to be bound to the land. They needed them to, to, to own nothing but their means of labor. Uh, and, and when you were previously bonded, like bondsmen, really, right. These, these, uh, peasants, in various other societies were, they, you couldn't leave. You lived on a farm of some kind, whether it be in, in, you know, Russia, the sort of peasant system there or various other systems in France. Uh, and, but, but also too, that meant the Lord of the land, uh, had a responsibility to keep you alive. There was a sort of mutual arrangement. Capitalism emerges and suddenly nobody owes you a livelihood anymore. You're on your own, Jack. And, and you, you have nothing but your, your, uh, labor power to sell. And that's an incredibly historically specific arrangement that, that is birthed under very kind of peculiar institutional frameworks where, like I said, this emerging bourgeois class temporarily has similar interests in terms of the political freedom of of the former peasant class and i yeah. know there are a lot of 
psychologists who are going to take me to task for the for the way I glossed over a lot of that. But but you get the gist. No, is, I, is, I, that, I, is that landing anywhere? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that they, I think that last point you were making that this is something like capitalism. You know, I mean, this is one of the big themes of of Marx's capital, right? That the uh, that uh, that capitalism is historically specific, right? That this isn't just sort mm -hmm. of how production processes work of their nature or something like that, right? You know, but this is like a really specific arrangement that arose in history at a specific time and, you know, in a specific way we can figure out and, you know, which is important, you know, on the other end, right? Because uh, this, because that means that it, it, you know, that like at least uh, suggests the possibility that it could go away, right? At, uh, at another time, you know, um, for, uh, <laughs> for other reasons. Um yeah, I've I, I have been in Kale's apartment, uh, and he's he's got a he's got a dusty book there called the Brenner Debate. That's just a, that's, that's just yep. an anthology of essays about that. Uh, but uh, shouts out to, shouts out to Kale Brooks uh, for the Brenner Debate. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and it's like you know, I mean, if anybody wants to kind of uh, add some complexity to Jordan's sort of uh, you know time immemorial, I mean, anytime somebody says this pulls this time immemorial shit and then quotes from the Gospels, your antenna should immediately go up, and you should say, "Fuck that historical specimen. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only takeaway you get from this episode and from the Brenner debate, then you've won because I mean, I mean, go and read anything about the, 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 the sort of um, the revolutions of 1848 across Europe, across the world, really. And these were called, you know, what Marx and his kind of compatriots would later term this as the, the bourgeois revolutions, right. but they weren't bourgeois revolutions from the start. They were a very complicated, contradictory uh, coalition of working class forces and proto bourgeois forces. Oh, at that time, quite bourgeois forces. So landowners and, and, and workers, former peasants and kind of, you know, somewhere in between peasants and working class at the time, uh, rising up against, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of more, a feudal state-centric arrangements that had reigned over Europe for over a thousand years. And, and, and so, you know, you had these sort of wealthy landowners who uh, were interested in, in fighting for the political rights of workers, the political rights, that is, to have nothing but their own labor power to sell, which is a certain kind of freedom. It's a very limited, contradictory yeah, freedom. So, so I should, uh, yeah. I should say, since we've, we've, mentioned this Brenner stuff three or four times just real real quickly right because it's this is like there's a lot of esoteric academic stuff that's not worth getting into here but i think something you know i think in a very broad sense what is worth saying is just this right so um my guy ga cohen uh wrote this book called Karl marx's theory of history uh where he lays out in a very uh clear and analytically rigorous way the sort of orthodox version of um of, of marx's view about history and uh, with regards really specifically to the point about the transition from feudalism to capitalism, this guy Brenner uh, comes along and, and says, eh, it's more complicated than that. You know, it didn't quite happen that way. And, you know, that there's like this big back and forth about that. Don't worry about that. They have the important point, I think, is that if you, if you think Brenner is right, that actually like really reinforces the point here, right? That this is like, yeah. this is this particular contingent historical development, right? So we've, we've taken... You know, Michael Brooks has named Vade a couple times here, so let's let's do it again and say, like, if you read his book uh, Against the Web, right, one of the things he talks about, this yeah. is not original to him, but he talks about a lot of that book and presents very well, is this um, is this idea that what people like Jordan Peterson, who's one of the main targets of that book, um, constantly do, 
is some combination of naturalizing or mythologizing social institutions. Like in other words, either portray mm -hmm. them as just like sort of part of nature, right? right. Or, yeah. you know, like, or else it's mythologizing, right? It's the dragon of chaos and the whatever it is of order and, you know, like all that stuff. Either way, right, what it's in contrast to, what the left, you know, what it's doing, what it should do does is... Um, Historicizing, showing that uh, showing that these uh, that these things are not like etched into the fabric of the universe, uh, that this is that this this comes uh, that you know a system like capitalism, you know, feudalism existed at a particular time, arose for particular reasons, and then went out of existence. Capitalism arose at a particular time for particular reasons, and we have you know there's this analysis that we have that says that uh, it could, you know come out of existence uh at uh at a uh at a future time um preferably you know in favor of something better and um and that's the you know and i think that what you know we should we should watch the next clip after this but i did just want to say like that that part that you just highlighted there from what peterson just said uh that uh that is he's, he's, he's like quoting well yeah he's doing the time immemorial thing which is like every like god-awful intro to philosophy paper that starts out with you know since the beginning of time people have argued about you know uh you know that's uh, either that or miriam webster defines right those are the, those are the two options for that kind of paper you know for the opening yep. but um but then like when he's talking about the gospels right, it says the poor will always be with us well i thought we were talking about capitalism that capitalism didn't exist in you know the first century roman province of palestine right you know that's like that's uh and, and there's some really there's really sloppy historical scholarship that tries to trace the kind of uh it's the tendency to truck and barter as we see in the roman markets and it's like yeah mother that's not that's that's not, that's not capitalism that's just a sort of market system there are market systems that exist because they they misrecognize the fundamental necessity for the existence of capitalism which is to have a class of laborers that own nothing and have no means of subsistence except for the ability to sell their labor power and i don't think that people understand how fresh and new that is there were obligations that previous ruling classes had to their underclasses uh, I'm not saying their lives were cushy or that was like a great thing, uh, but capitalism is literally one of the first systems that, you know, uh, no one's going to keep you from dying in a gutter, except for the quasi-socialist state, by the way, uh, uh, because because you don't belong to anyone. Right. You know, if your mama doesn't want to pay for your food and your rent <laughs> or she can't, uh, you die in a gutter. Uh, previously, if you were bonded to a, a lord or some other kind of sort of a state-sanctioned uh, landholder, uh, that Lord was in some way, at least, um, obligated to keep you alive in some way. And then again, they also had the power of uh, life or death over you in certain instances. Uh, English manorial capitalism, along with uh, uh, English common law, is this very, I mean, people should really study this. Uh, I wish it was more accessible. It's this very peculiar, just strange formation that allowed for this uh, a class of free laborers, quote unquote, free, right? It's yeah, a yeah. contradictory freedom that exists but anyway we should we should move on yeah uh, yeah and, and, I should, and i should say too actually this is gonna be very relevant so um you know because i'm not sure if we're gonna watch this part or not right but there's there's a point where um you know peterson sort of says, well you know there are good things about the nordics or whatever you know and it's like to go to your point about like if there's something that's preventing you from 
dying in the gutter. It's like a social democratic state or whatever incredibly pale shadow of that you have in other places, you know, that, um, but really like, are. yeah, it's extremely pale. Yeah. Um, uh, should and, go watch the Northman. Everybody should watch the Northman when I don't know if it's historically accurate, but one of the most sort of honest way of looking at previous sites. I don't, you know, I know Jake's watched the, uh, the endorsement, uh, the North nasty, uh, British, nasty, brutish and short. You know, to uh, to quote one of our uh, former uh, political philosopher friends. Yeah, it's good for arguing against the uh, the the culture argument about the Nordics, at least that, it, or it's like in their DNA or something like that that they right. just are have a naturally more good egalitarian. Yeah, society. as right as as Michael, I remember, put it once, like this idea that it's like you know Sweden has this like giant welfare state because everybody like went to the same Lutheran church and they just decided to be nice, right? You know that like. Yeah. Um, cause, cause you know, what actually happened there, this is crucial to the point, right. Is that, um, you had, uh, incredibly militant industrial unions, uh, a place like Sweden, which was actually one of the most unequal societies in Europe at one point, uh, allied to, you know, socialist political party that, you know, that, and, you know, well, a main one and, you know, but socialist political parties, plural, you know, historically, right. You know, that, um, that like through like really bitter political struggle and struggle at the workplace, like 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 you know nobody gave them this right. I mean like you know they they had to achieve it, but and not uh, necessarily homogenous either. Not necessarily homogenous at all at at the outset, right? It was sort of that's a result. The the at least perceived homogeneity of those societies is an outcome of the the sort of uh, socialist revolutions at the state level. Um, but anyway, yeah, exactly. All right, let's do the next clip. Um, so which ones are we, we thinking about? Chronologically, we, ha we have them talking about determining need, uh, planning versus market uh, or versus market planning. Yeah, let's let's do the let's do the planning versus markets. That feels like a natural evolution for this. I believe it's right here. Let's make sure. Well, you see uh, what what you have here. And uh, just kidding. If you guys were that was that was actually me. That wasn't Jordan. Yeah, you, I actually no. kind of thought I thought I had started the video early. Uh, <laughs> you got me. Do you have? Hold on. Pause. For, do you have a Peterson under underneath your belt, Burgess? I don't hear you doing many many uh many. No, uh, no, I, I I I absolutely cannot do the, a uh, a Peterson. That adventure. was like that was like Chad Jordan Peterson for a second uh, <laughs> after having some testosterone. All right, let's see. This is the other problem yeah, that the Marxists have in particular. The free market system is a giant compute computational device, distributed computational device, involving billions of calculations per second, trying to compute the transforming horizon of the future. Billions. And it can't be replaced by central planning, not even in principle. But don't you think there are some issues with that because profits at the core of it? So just to push back a little bit, a study came out, Scientific American reported on this recently. If the United States had a universal health care system like Canada, for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, 330,000 more lives could have been saved. So in some ways, I agree. Well, that the free I, I market listened to a study like that. And I think no one, no one in the world, no, there's no one in the world who can possibly produce a study like that with valid outcomes. You don't so, think that that's and the fact that Scientific American reported it? Not in the least. I've done really? 150, I've done 100 published studies. I know exactly mm. how they work. And there's no possible way that you can produce a scientific study with that kind of conclusion. Not unless you build can you it pause it for a second? Can you pause it for a second? There's variables to take into account. So Dr. Peterson has produced 100 uh, accredited studies on how to determine your love language, uh, <laughs> according to this simple 10-question quiz. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I, I, mean, I mean, just well, the idea. Really, that like, save my merit. No, it didn't. It does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, but like, whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely the uh, the divorce dad basement you've got going there. But they have a. Uh, that's, uh, uh, no. Could you tell? Um, was it wasn't obvious. Uh, but uh, but no, I mean, this is like. God, I, like this is an amazing moment. I'm actually glad you paused on this because has nothing to do with what we're getting to. But like, Jeez. it's 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 just so fucking stupid that like he's saying, like, well, I've done these. I mean, let's say they were you know not as bullshitty as much of what he puts out there. Uh, some of which is not far from what Adam said. But like, let's say these were all like extremely respectable psychological studies, right? Whatever that means, I don't know. But they have a like. These are all extremely respectable psychological studies. Okay. So like this, like having done some psycho some like studies in his field of psychology means that he he knows what you can or can't discover in like any field of human endeavor that like he could just sort of like just with the power of his thoughts, he knows in advance. It's like, no, you know, physicists say they've shown that nope, nope, bullshit. I know. I know, right? They can't possibly have discovered that. You know, it's like, well, they did the study. I've, I've done it. I've done at least one thousand studies on personality types, and I can determine your perfect partner on Tinder if you just <laughs> take this quiz. And it, he's quit his. Te- I, I had to Google this because I listened, and uh, it's like fifty bucks. I mean, it's a good grift if you can get it. You know, charging a bunch of like lovesick teenagers fifty dollars a pop of their parents' money to take the personality quiz. It's going to match you with your perfect partner. Uh, but you know, I mean, it's it, it's like, you know, and then he starts off by saying, "There are billions." of calculations billy like what is it what is it if you can't if you can't really make a good argument just baffle them with bullshit that's like what he's doing here right just baffling with bullshit uh as far as as that goes and later i can't help to say i don't think we're gonna go here but i want to so everything has to be all these studies you can't possibly know these things and yet at the very end of the episode he makes a claim that the sort of trans rights movement has undoubtedly and this is almost verbatim undoubtedly hurt exponentially more people than it's helped. So his claims don't need to be backed by anything uh, at all. He doesn't even need to cite studies. Uh, and yet everyone else's studies are, are undeniably false. Uh, it's, it's. Yeah. Cause, cause he's done some, he's done some studies on, you know, whatever languages. Yeah. yeah. And so, so he knows what you can and can't establish. Well, well, this harkens back to the Rogan appearance when he's saying like the climate is everything and you can't study everything. Like he's trying to say it's like beyond the bounds of what research could possibly ever, ever study. Um, which I guess implies that what he studies like love languages is empirical uh, <laughs> or more empirical. Than, it's an exaggeration, like, but it's not much of an exaggeration of what he does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just whatever he did hey, said, he's claiming. Hey, are you are you more of like a touch? Are you like more of a touch guy or like a words of affirmation guy? I have yeah. to. Know. <laughs> that, yeah, that's within the realm of empirical. Uh, I mean, I like acts of service sometimes. Like if somebody does the dishes for me, it's kind of nice. It makes me feel special. Uh, but according to the Peterson quiz, I'm more of a words guy. Uh, I should work uh, yeah, there you yeah. go. There you go. Yeah, you got to baffle, baffle them with bullshit. You got to baffle clean them with bullshit, fellow. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. so I, I just yeah yeah. That, yeah the claim about the study is is ridiculous but like what he's starting to try to do before he like the structure of what we just watched we should watch more about like the structure of what we just watched is he sort of lays on the like hayek von mises kind of of argument that like he's heard and he can sort of repeat 
uh, that um, that you can't have like state planning can't do what what markets do and and you know coordinating production priorities with consumer preferences um, and you know getting capital goods where they need to go so they're you know so this for the stuff that you need to produce and all that stuff um, and uh, and then Kyle is making. I mean, I think there's a, I don't know, at least this this how I I hear it. I mean, maybe, maybe this isn't how he sees his point, but I mean, the, the point that it seems like Kyle's making is, well, hold up, right? Because like, even if there's some truth to that, and you know, and, and look, I mean, I think that the, I don't think we should be too, um, you know, I mean, I don't think, um, you know, like I think there are real problems with figuring out how like economic planning could work and, you know, and, and there there's there's a, there's like something real that's lurking there. Uh, but like also, like even if you read something like People's Republic of Walmart by uh, Lee Phillips and uh, Mikhail Rosworski, where they're like pretty enthusiastic about planning, they'll still acknowledge problems. We don't necessarily need to know how to do all of this stuff yet and, and all of that, right? So there's like a real thing there. But like what Kyle is pointing out is, okay, Dr. Peterson, but come on, like surely there are at least some sectors in which planning in various like real existing social democracies actually does a pretty good job, right? I mean, like that, uh, that like it's good that healthcare has been decommodified in a bunch of countries. That's like way better for them, right? Than than uh, yeah. that it would be if it was it was still in the market, which which is just like a correct point. And his yeah, you, you was- and Matt you and Matt uh, McManus break that down really well. I will say, and I, I caught that piece uh, of of that. I mean, that's just undeniable. It's a completely absurd that uh, Peterson would would deny uh, the superiority of of some kind of state planning over healthcare. I mean, it, it's yeah, yeah. So it it just like and this is just and this is just Peterson just like refusing to acknowledge it because it's like like. Let's say, for the sake of argument, he's right about the study. I think that his argument that like he's done studies, so he knows how studies work in every possible field, and so he all he needs to hear is like a one sentence summary of it. He can tell you whether it's bullshit, even though it has absolutely yeah. nothing to do with what he has expertise in. Uh, like as silly as that is, like okay, pretend for the sake of argument that the uh, the you know the study is a bad study. Okay, but like what about the more fundamental point here that like people have better outcomes in countries with nationalized healthcare uh, or health insurance. And like, obviously it would have been better if we had that during a awful pandemic that also coincided with lots of people losing their employer health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Uh, I mean, and it's I mean, he contradicts himself so many times, but he contradicts himself directly here. There's a place where I'm not sure if we'll get to it in any of the clips that we're going to roll, but he talks about, he almost sort of, uh, bops Kyle in the head and says, no, no, wait a minute. You know, these markets, they, uh, require tremendous amounts of sort of, uh, you know, uh, he didn't say planning, but something about like coordination from sort of state and state level institutions. Uh, so he he fully and readily acknowledges the fact that you know. By the way, like I think I believe the late Ellen Mason Woods said this in her in many of her writings. She said, you know, free market capitalism was planned. Right. Uh, of course it is, and it, and it and still is. I mean, just watch the Fed. I mean, why why do you yeah. think people you know shit their pants every time the Fed uh, uh, makes any proclamation? You know, uh, the Fed chair wakes up and. Uh, and, and, you know, looks out his window and, and, 
and you know and, and talks about it you know well this uh, loon is chirping across the, the the water it's a beautiful day and, and someone steals a page from his journal and, and publishes it in the wall street journal and everybody shits their pants it's just every word has to be deciphered because it, there's just this acceptance that the fed is 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 sort of uh lording over our our, our our market system and it's obvious and yet here it's like well billions of calculations it's just i can't yeah uh, kale said it well he said you know this is the kind of classic conservative um attempt to obfuscate by resorting to human or you know, sort of individual psychology anyway let's 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 roll the tape yep so and we're not also debating whether or not in some circumstances a public health care system is a desirable good that that's something that needs to be discussed at the level of detail mm. there may be situations where it's an entirely good I'm telling you some of the downsides. One of the downsides, I'm telling you what happens in Canada, is that if you're in a dire situation, it's not like having to wait two years. My dad waited two years for knee replacement, two and a half years. That was exacerbated by COVID. It's not like that isn't expensive. He couldn't move. That's expensive. It cost him money. And there was nothing we could do about it. He was too elderly to be taken down to the States. It was too logistically complex. And so he was basically crippled for two years. Now that's, that's costly. And you think, well, it's not money. It's like, yes, it is. It's money and time. Now, lots of people in Canada are talking about a hybrid private public model. And that would have lots to be done experimentally more and, and carefully to see what the advantages and disadvantages would be. And the metrics would have to be established properly, right? So you have to figure out what it is you're trying to measure. Wait times might be one of them because wait times are basically a proxy for expense. And I already said the Canadian public health system seems to be more efficient than the American system in some ways, because American hospitals spend about 30% of their budget collecting money, right? Because having to keep track of everything that's being uh, offered, having to charge for that, it's actually a tremendous administrative burden. And that does seem to be somewhat lessened, for example, in the Canadian system. And the big problem with the Canadian system, first of all, we don't know if it's sustainable. That's a problem. But the wait times are catastrophic and it's chronically underfunded. Now, that may be an intractable problem. We don't know if it's sustainable, but geez, we can't figure out why. Also, it's underfunded. Because like, right? people pretty much spend everything they have yeah. if they're dying. I mean, I would just say we have wait times here, too, because 45,000 people die every year in the U.S. because they don't have health care. That's a wait yeah, line that's littered with dead bodies. So that's I'm not like a making the case. Line. I'm not making the case that the American system is preferable to the Canadian system. I haven't <laughs> okay. made that case. Okay. So I'm saying that we don't exactly know how to negotiate this going forward. The part of it, now, there are some people in the U.S. that face terrible wait times and can't get access to hospitals at all. Mm. I'm saying that there are people in the U.S. who don't face that, and everyone in Canada faces it. And it doesn't seem right. to me the least bit reasonable that if I have excess resources, even those that could be devoted to subsidizing the health care for poorer people, if I was willing to pay a premium for more rapid healthcare delivery, and one of the consequences of that would be that I would subsidize with my own funds the surgery or medical treatment of someone who was in more dire economic straits, why shouldn't I be allowed to do that? Why not set up the system so that both of those would be possible? Like this arbitrary idea that, well, it's got to be public or it's got to be private. It's like, well... No, first of all, healthcare isn't one thing. It's 300,000 things, each of them oh, differentiable Lord. and complicated. And each of them baffle them with bullshit gentlemen. necessarily by people who are wise at a level of detail. And then oh. to work out, and with regard to these 
Scandinavian countries, these models. You have to remember, these countries have fewer people than some of your cities. They're very homogenous societies. They're much simpler societies than the US, mm. which is just like staggeringly complex, complex, complex society. And so a lot of the solutions that work in Scandinavia, it's not obvious that they'll scale to a country the size of the US. Okay, let's, they- let's pause this. Yeah, yeah. Them. Com- so, so, you know, uh, complex and, and, and on what terms? On terms of the ailments the afflict that afflict the human body? Last time I checked, it doesn't matter if you've got 20 like pasty white uh, Norwegians uh, versus like 20 incredibly diverse, uh, ethnically diverse uh, Americans that they would face different uh, ailments. It's just it's a, it's absurd. Um the, well, which, which, which is, which is by the way, I, I have to say this was this was Adolf's point, the good Adolf, not the not the World War II Adolf. Uh, the uh, this is Adolf Reed's point about uh, uh, the uh, return of racial medicine, right? You know, when, when he said like like it was it was driving him crazy at the beginning of of uh, COVID, when people were writing these articles like, wow, black people seem to be dying of COVID at a higher rate of white people. We should like research to see if there's some sort of DNA thing going on here. It's like, no, there's a wallet thing going on there, right? I mean, like that's not uh, like, you know, this this isn't that there's something about like skin tone that makes you more likely to die of COVID, right? It's that living in poverty makes you more likely to, uh, to die of COVID. Black folks uh, are disproportionately represented in the working and underclasses in America due to historical factors in, in the United States. Uh, and it's just the, it's, I mean, that shows the absence of any class analysis or just to put it more kind of uh, to the yeah. point, political economy on both sides, the liberals that the uh, Adolf Reed, uh, Dr. Reed are going after there is, uh, uh, you know, uh, completely devoid of political economy and the understanding of how class uh, sort of overdetermines these other kind of uh, stratifications that uh, you know liberal sociologists have come up with, and then of course there's Peterson over here just completely baffling us with bullshit and, and completely uh, ignoring uh, the class uh, stratification that exists too. Because what he's really arguing for, uh, you know, in his uh, polemic against the Canadian system, by the way, he's not advocating for the American system. He's just bashing the alternative. Anyway, yeah, I digress. Yeah. Like fucking bullshit. Uh, is is that uh, he's he's you know I mean that's he's arguing he's like this is a form of rationing that should be allowed that rich people should have access to all of the care. Uh, but socially that's, you know, that's a, that's rationing, but we can't have a socialist system in healthcare cause that's rationing. And this yeah. is a classic conservative move is that, uh, you know, we can't have rationing of socialism, uh, but we, but we can have rationing according to uh, those who, who can afford it. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, blatant here i really wish kyle would have taken him to task uh for this but again it's it's that absence yeah. of political economy that we talked about yeah uh and i know that's what we uh we want to do and you know i mean he he does and he he does and he does it as it goes on but like yeah. i have a but I, yeah. but i should say um in, in some ways he does but in, in the yeah. not necessarily the way you're talking about but like he right, um right. you know so yeah i think that like what Peterson is really doing in this whole section that we just watched is he's he's trying to walk this weird tightrope because it's like look he's a Canadian uh, he he sort of knows a little bit too much about this to just be like yes clearly the American system is better let's just abolish this and like any remaining credibility he had among anybody in his home country would just like go away if he said that right so like he can't quite say that but he also doesn't just want to concede the painfully obvious point that this mm-hmm. is a sector where state planning has been a smashing success 
right? That uh, that like, and that this does really complicate this like real simple kind of Austrian school economics argument that he's he's trying to make about uh, markets and planning. Uh, so he can't he can't acknowledge that, like, because if once you've acknowledged that, then it's like, well, we can't just know a priori that uh, that like you know because the billions of calculations or whatever you know that like it's always going to be better to have the markets be in charge of things. We'd actually have to start looking at empirical evidence, you know, and um, so that right. would be a big concession. So you can't do either one of these things. So instead, he's just going for the baffling with them with bullshit move, where he's like just kind of trying to muddy the waters and be like, well, you know, <laughs> it's maybe better in some ways, it's but like it's really, really complicated. And we definitely can't conclude anything for this case about the, you know, about markets not always being um being for the best. And, you know, maybe we should, you know, more people are saying, you know, so many people are saying all the Canadians are rising <laughs> up and saying that like, we need to, all saying with, it, folks. you know, we need to experiment with like private hybrid privatized public models, you know, cause I'm sure like you, you walk around like Toronto or, you know, Ottawa, Montreal, you know, but like, like every random person on the street, like you just listen to their conversation. That's what they're saying. You know, we need hybrid, yeah. you know, private public healthcare, um, As someone who spent years in Toronto, uh, that's not what they're saying. Actually, the racists uh, say something very different. The racists say, we fucking love our health care. We don't want these fucking immigrants to come in here and take it. Right. Uh, uh, which is obviously bad. Uh, but it but it but it flies in the face of his argument that everybody in Canada hates it because even the right wing racists quite love it. In fact, they they would be willing to protect it and take up arms to uh, exterminate uh, uh, ethnic uh, mi minorities in order to, to to save it. So I mean that's an extreme right. example, but I mean hey, uh, it is what it is. That's what the fascists organize around in these kind of uh, quasi socialist uh, democratic or socialist societies. Uh, you see the same thing in, in these uh, Nordic countries uh, with some of these kind of very small and powerless uh, fascist parties. Uh, they want to protect their their socialist yeah. institutions. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's certainly what they're going to say. Because if they're going to have, if they're going to be able to appeal to populations that are used to these institutions, they can't say like, "Oh, let's get rid of yeah. them." Right? I mean, that's not going to have any traction at all. Right? They have to tell some kind of story about why their awful program is actually going to defend it. And then when he's talking about the Nordics, you know, he's just do. I mean, that this is where it gets real lazy. Like, like he's just completely just playing the right wing hits uh, with with this last talking point about the Nordics that, uh, that it's like, Oh, this is just, um, you know, that it's, there's, they're so small, they're so homogenous, you know, that it's like, okay. And like, give me the rest of the argument here. Right. You know, like you're not telling me why right. that means that like do the laws of economics work differently. Does the human body work differently if we're talking right, about healthcare? Right. Cause like, and, and moreover, yeah. The, the, the strength, the strength of 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 the socialized uh, healthcare system is is that you have a collective purchasing power, mm -hmm. a collective kind of a, almost like a bully power, a, a monopolist power even in the market uh, for gauze and crutches and uh, uh, medical equipment, uh, uh, MRI machines, things like that in these uh, these uh, countries that have. Uh, some kind of socialized medicine uh, that com is completely absent in the United States. And so, uh, in fact, frankly, the fact that America is so huge relative to these other countries is a strength. And that's not something I'm inventing. Uh, most of the really brilliant advocates for single payer healthcare in, in the United States uh, make that point constantly. Adam Gaffney and, of course, uh, Lee Phillips and Mikhail Wozorowski make that uh, point uh, many times in their book on the People's Republic of Walmart and you know the ability for state planning in, in a country like America. Size is a strength, not a weakness. 
So that's the first thing. Anytime anybody brings that to you, to the dear audience, anytime somebody brings that to you as a limitation, say that's exactly why this is so powerful. Because imagine with the amount of people that we have in the United States, if we could all collectively bargain against the manufacturers of gauze, so that when you get your bill from the ER, uh, a roll of gauze doesn't cost you $50 because they can right? The state would go in and collectively say for this calendar year, we have X amount of money. We're going to purchase all your gauze, but this is how much we're going to pay for it per roll. And you're going to get fabulously wealthy <laughs> uh, because we're going to give you all the money. We're going to guarantee you a market for every roll of gauze that you, per that you, that you produce, but also that we're going to buy it at this, at this price. Yeah. I mean, there's no a more. Certain, you know, I mean, this is actually like a, you know, like, this is not a some sort of like radical socialist point. This is like econ 101 stuff where there's there's one there's right. one if there's a single payer in a system, the price is pretty much whatever that payer says it's gonna be, right? Like that's that's how you, you, you don't have to buy like you know Marx's variation of the labor theory of value and all the rest of it, uh, in order to to understand that uh, sort of purchasing power of a collective entity, which would be a state entity. Uh, and that's what they really fear here. That's what the, that's what the problem is. And they'll baffle you with bullshit about all the other, you know, uh, invented details and then the billions of calculations the, what they really feel fear is an empowered state that is democratically oriented for the needs of the masses, because it, it takes away the ability of the wealthy and the rich in their particular country to go uh, jet set across the world and, and get their health care uh, ahead of others, uh, who actually have a, a greater need. Um, and also, you know, I mean, let's just this openly dispute uh, this, like my father waited two and a half years for knee replacement. I mean, that's standard. All right. My, 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 my boomer parents who are not wealthy by any means, but they've got great health care because they came up in the right generation uh, have had to wait. You, you, that's what you do. You fucking wait for major surgeries. I don't know anyone who walks in a hospital and just gets a hip replacement. Uh, I mean, it's a logistical sort of, you know, kind of a yeah, scheduling unless, thing, if nothing else. Yeah, unless, um, you, in fact, unless in, you owe the hospital, it's probably not happening. And in fact, I mean, you have to go through, there's a checklist that these insurance companies, even if you have that Cadillac Boomer insurance, there's a checklist that has to be fulfilled of things that you have to do first. So, you know, in other words, before my mother got her knee replacement uh, that was paid for by her Boomer public sector worker insurance, by the way, uh, you know, uh, she had to go through a checklist of first, you have to get shots first, you have to get cortisone injections first, then you have to get these other injections. And if that doesn't work, then sure. Yeah, fine. We'll pay uh, uh, 80, 20 or whatever it is, you know, after deductible, uh, uh, of, of this knee replacement. So it's not even true. It's just on, on the very base level, it's not even true. And, and I think it speaks to the way that Canadians, unfortunately, I love my dear Canadians, but you guys are just woefully, uh, uh, uh ignorant and blissfully, I should say, ignorant of how, awful the american healthcare system is yeah you know, I mean, I which, which is you know which is good i mean right because it's like if we're if we're yeah. talking to somebody who uh you know it's like a, a time traveler who'd come back from like some you know post-apocalyptic mad max world where they're gonna like explain to us exactly how their negotiations with like the you know, the wasteland cannibals worked you know so they could like you know <laughs> they could like get some water and like you know we'd be like we'd be really confused about it because we wouldn't be familiar with yeah. the system because we never would have had absolutely. To <laughs> there's some, there's like you know, some viral videos that kind of man on the street approach. Like I believe it's Australia, and they're sort of asking, uh, so you know, how much student debt do you think would be a lot? You know, how much student debt do you think? You know, everybody knows America has a problem with student debt. How much do you think the average student debt is that Americans take on? And they're like, oh Jesus, probably a lot there, mate. You know, my Australian should be better. It's not. It's awful. Uh, I don't know, like maybe 500, like, I don't know what they say is something really weird. And, and you're know, like, actually, no, like $30,000 or 40,000. And everybody's like, what the f 
fuck? You know, it's just like they can't understand. I mean, I remember I had a sinus infection when I was a grad student in Toronto and and I had a special health card because I'm not a citizen. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I went and I got the medication. They, they prescribed me and me. I got in the office immediately. No wait time. I got I mean, I know whatever, uh, you know, uh, uh, just one guy anecdote is limited, but I walked right in the office. I got, you know, a uh, diagnosed right away. Very nice physician, uh, no wait time. And, and by the way, she wrote me a prescription and they had the pills at the doctor's office. You didn't have to go to a fucking pharmacy. They're like, Hey, we prescribed it to you. We got it right here. Here you go. They just hand it to you. And on the way out the door, this very nice receptionist was like, Oh geez. Oh geez. Oh geez. And I'm sure she'd like been giving her pep, herself a pep talk in the bathroom mirror for like 30 minutes. Cause she had to deliver some bad news to me. And she was really nervous about it. She's like, Oh, geez, there, Mr. Adam, I got some really bad news because you're not a citizen and you have this health card. We're going to have to charge you for today's visit. And I'm like, all right, fuck it. How much is it? I'm used to like shelling out 200 bucks uninsured in the United States. She's like, oh, gosh, gee, golly, I'm really sorry about this. It's uh, it's going to be seven dollars and 50 cents. <laughs> Like a couple fucking toonies. Just take them. I'm good. Like, and she's like, what? And I mean, it was just astonishing. She was just, just so embarrassed and, and, and nervous about telling me that she was going to charge me like seven bucks for this doctor's <laughs> visit. Emergency, this emergency doctor's visit uh, and, 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 a, and a bottle of pills. Uh, so, so there's a way in which I don't mean to let, uh, our, our friend, uh, Dr. Peterson off the hook here, but there's a way in which I don't think that Canadians understand. No, the, the, it, the depth of this thing. right. It's thinking that like, you just, you just, uh, show up with a lot of cash and, you know, like, Oh, here you go. He, he oh. seems, he seems kind of pissed off too, that he can't skip the line because he's rich. Also. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah. well, this is, this is what I was going to say, right. I made like, um, I know, uh, you know, I know we're uh, we're doing political economy uh, today, but just to, just to indulge in uh, in some um, you know moral emotionalism for just a second, uh, the like this this argument always infuriates me about lines because it's like okay, I mean one, you know, if you actually the proof is the pudding, right? I mean, if your concern is about people dying in lines, you can compare the rates of mortality amenable to healthcare, but like. Two, yeah, like for some things, right? The waits are shorter in the United States. That's true, right? Because like if you kick a whole shitload of people out of the line because they can't afford to pay, then people who, who you know, like they, you know, and like if you just let people buy their way to the head of the line, right? They don't have to wait as long. That's nothing to brag about. Right, yeah. And I mean, this is this is to get back to the beginning, the start of our conversation about the replacement, the kind of like a... a, a somewhat limited what they what one of my professors at york Hannes locker who's a big uh a big kind of a brenner type of dude uh he's one of brenner's uh disciples actually students um he called the pez dispenser theory of of uh, econo political economic systems so first slave then feudal then capitalism but one one mode overtakes another because the interests of of the dominant ruling class are, are so kind of like contradictory and antithetical to the obvious needs of that particular order that they just, you know, another class rises up to, to replace them. And uh, the problem is now, you know, capitalism is stuck. It's stuck because it's, it's so obvious that there's this kind of the rights that are rich are, are being like fearlessly uh, and fiercely defended. And, and there isn't yet a class that can come up and, uh, and, 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 and usurp that rightfully. So like, the bourgeoisie in their own right did, uh, you know, in, in the 17 and 1800s, but anyway, moving along. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh,
Thank you. Thank you, Red M, for the super chat. Uh, yeah, thanks, right. Ron. I appreciate that. Um, by the way, earlier I was very impressed because I was just because I was drinking in a glass, but uh, somebody said, "Is that an Oberon?" So that's that is a that is a guy uh, the, uh, that you can just you can just recognize, I guess the uh, uh, the coloration or something. But uh, I Holy am in Michigan. I am in Michigan right now, hence the weird background. Uh, so uh, does the Oberon uh, does the Oberon taste better up there? Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's you can actually now find a lot of other parts of the country, but like it didn't it did yeah. used to. This is always like the thing when you when I got back to Michigan, you know, like if I, if I came back for a while in the summer, that was like the first thing, you know, go to like the quality dairy or something and pick up some Oberon and always see this. Like, oh man, this is good. I'm it was a treat. I was a bartender and our distributor would give us uh, just a few six packs at the time. This was 10 years ago. And, 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 and the employees and some of our regulars would rush in and swoop up all of the six packs before we could even sell it behind the bar. They just buy the six pack of it. And it was, it was a, yeah, anyway, I digress. I'm more of a two hotted guy myself, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, but at uh, Oberon's delicious. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's see if we could uh, squeeze in one last Peterson clip. Uh, do you, uh, do you want to do the, the thing about rights? Yeah, let's do that. That'll be good. This is where he just blatantly contradicts himself about everything we just talked about. So uh, hold on to your butts. It's very rare that you have a right that requires someone else to provide it for you. Yeah, but they, they so, have that in France, for example. They have a right to health care in their constitution. Well, are they, they arguably have that right. I mean, mm -hmm. it depends. First of all, I don't like the French civil system. I think it's a catastrophe. Well, it's a Western catastrophe, so it's not that big a catastrophe. But... It's nothing, it, it has virtually no merit compared to the English common law system. And I don't think the French civil system would have been possible without the English common law system having been there first. And under Marx English agreed with law, that, by the way. You have all the rights there are. They're not granted to you by the government. They're an intrinsic part of your being and a necessary corrective to the overreach of the state. And those are only delimited by necessity intrinsic when people engage in conflict. And then that conflict is adjudicated in the English common law system, precedent by precedent. And what would you call negotiation as to the borders of rights are undertaken at the level of extreme high detail. And that's a brilliant system. The French suffer from the same delusion. They've always suffered from this delusion, this French intellectual delusion that intellect and central planning can, can, can substitute for increment, the incremental movement of free market systems, including free market systems in the, in the area of jurisprudence. And that's just not the case. And the idea that you have a right to health care is like, well, who's going to provide it? You're going to force doctors to do that? And how are you going to do that exactly? With force. And so, so I'm not saying that health care has... isn't desirable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's the right issue here. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about whether or not the government can and should intervene so that a healthcare minimum is provided to the populace at large. That's a different issue. The issue here is the issue of right. And rights are very, you don't wanna multiply rights beyond necessity because every right that you multiply puts the onus of responsibility on everyone as well. They're not, they're not cost free. And so what constitute rights is a very difficult thing to determine. I'm also not a fan of bills of rights. I think they're generally a mistake. Really? I like the English system much better. Yeah, so, absolutely. So like the Bill of because Rights because the idea problem with like that? Not particularly. No, I think it's an wow. inelegant okay. solution. And the reason for mm. that is that 
under the English common law system from which the Bill of Rights was derived, you have all the rights there are. Whereas under a French civil system, which is, and, and that derivative of that is the American Bill of Rights, the government grants you the rights. And I don't believe the government grants you rights. I don't think that's how it works. I don't think rights are a secondary derivative of a social contract. That's a that's wrong way of looking at it because it, it makes the government and the social contract the source of the rights. And I think that's a big mistake. So, so you're not a fan of basically any positive rights. You think we have negative rights and that's basically the end of it, correct? Well, you'd have to tell me exactly what positive rights you're thinking about. I don't believe that you have a right to health care, even though obviously the more health care we can provide to people in the most efficient possible manner, the better that is for everyone. Now, health care is a tricky one because it's, a, it's an unlimited domain because almost everything can be shoehorned into the category of health. And so that's also a problem with regards to, let's say, delimiting what might constitute the right. I mean, you have a right to health care. You have a right to mental health. You have a right to physical health. Well, of course you don't. Obviously not. How could you possibly have a right to those things? We got to pause, I think, to break this down. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, um, uh, this is the baffle them with bullshit and the kind of domino effect. It's a classic conservative uh, posture. And in, in, in any sense, I think, you know, Kale in the chat uh, shouts out to our friend Kale said this first uh, is that he imagined himself to be this sort of uh, path breaking maverick. It's just sort of a conservative problem. Uh, well, what if we do that? Well, if we do that, then, then, you know, we'll do this. And then next thing you know, the lions will be laying with the lambs and uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, I mean, you do, you do. The, the fact is, and with all the limitations of the French system, which by the way, Marx would have agreed with him because the French system is hopelessly bureaucratic because it's a, it's a, a, a sort of a, a, this pastiche sort of pasted together kind of a post uh, feudal order that kind of was capitalismized <laughs> uh, in the, in the, in the vein of the English system. Uh, after capitalism became so powerful there. But anyway, that's another conversation. Uh, it's bureau it's bureaucratic, but you do have a right. If you show up to the ER, they have to fucking treat you. That's a right to healthcare. Right. Uh, quite concretely. I don't know how to get any more concrete than that. If you, if you waltz into a, an ER in, in, a, in France or in Canada or in any other system with socialized medicine, they have to fucking treat you. And they do. Is it perfect? No. Is it limited because of lack of funding and all the rest of it? Sure. Bureaucratic bloat? Sure. But this, like, again, baffling with bullshit, uh, Ben. Yeah. I, I mean, this is, so this is an argument, like, that a lot of conservatives love. And he is throwing in some just, like, like, okay, that you don't want to multiply rights beyond necessity. Like somewhere or another, he heard the phrase multiply entities beyond necessity, which is like a fancy way of expressing like uh, Occam's razor, right? You know, that you, you mm. should, um, you know, a sort of simpler theory of, you know, how the world works is more likely to be true, but it sounds fancy. And, you know, I don't really know what it means to multiply rights beyond necessity. I mean, I could like, maybe bend over backwards and give a charitable interpretation of that, but I don't really feel like it. So we'll, we'll just leave it there. But, um, you know, it, it just, it just seems like something he's throwing in because it makes it sound like he's making a more sophisticated argument, right? The sort of, what if everybody had rights to go see the Harry Styles concert at Madison square garden, but there's only, but so many seats at Madison square garden. How are all the people going to go see Harry Styles? Like, it's just, I, I, like, I, 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 yeah, I, it's just this sort of like, what if I can't. It, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and it just seems like, you know, the core of the argument is the kind of thing that like you will run into very quickly if you just go over to Reddit and like argue with some libertarians, you know, which which is that like, oh no, the only real rights uh, that we could possibly have, by which they mean like the only rights that are endorsed right by their their moral worldview are uh, negative rights, right? Rights to not have things done to you uh, as opposed to, you know, positive rights, rights to have things done for you, which sounds like a very simple distinction, but then like you think about it a little bit too long, right? Or maybe you, uh, you know, you read a little Matt Brunig say, and, um, and what he will remind you of is that this doesn't actually like, okay, so so with these tell me more about these negative rights how these work right and i say i mean because if we're talking about legal rights then you're right right i mean like you do have a enforceable practical legal right to healthcare in many countries like that's just a fact right no getting around that so if what you're really talking about is like a moral right right you say oh no, no we don't have any of these positive rights right we only have you know, we only have negative rights, right? You know, so like, um, and in fact, you can only, you know, you can only, you know, you can only enforce positive rights by infringing on negative rights, which there's like a super stupid version of and like an only moderately stupid version of, right? The super stupid version of it is where you say like, oh, what are you going to, if we have people have a right to healthcare, does that mean you're going to like force people to be doctors? You know, which is obviously not what anybody means. Um but and I think Peterson actually does trot that out at one point in this discussion. But then, uh, but then the sort of, you know, what I'm maybe harshly calling the only moderately stupid version of it is where you say, well, you know, I have this negative right to like all of the pre-tax income in my bank account, and you're violating that, you know, uh, by uh, by saying that there's this right, you know, to healthcare. Say, so, well, I mean, okay, um, but. Look, if we're going to argue about morality here, the issue of dispute is surely whether the person who needs health care has a right to those resources or you do, right? And, and, I, and you know, you could say, yeah. well, you know, I mean, and, and what kind of, you're saying you have this right. Well, what kind of right are we talking about? Like, a, surely yeah. not a legal right, because, like, if we're talking about legal rights, then you do not, in fact, have a have a um legal right to whatever you owe to the internal revenue service or, you know, the equivalent of your society. Uh, so you're saying you have a moral right to it, but like, okay, but then that's just the issue and dispute, right? It made like, that's, that's, you know, like, you know, you're just making a circular argument because the, the whole, the thing that we're arguing about is who should have the money, right? Should the, right. uh, yeah. sh- I mean, should this money be in your bank account <laughs> Or should it be? I, I got. I got to do the dirt. I got to do the nerd shit. I got to do the nerd shit here. And I is a mic drop in one of the chapters of Capital. I believe it's been years. Uh, uh, but yeah. you know, the mic drop at the end of the chapter is between equal rights, force decides. Yeah. Is the last sentence, if not one of the last sentences, in one of those chapters, between equal rights, force decides. So even if the, we do have these sort of equal negative rights that are bestowed not by states, but by God Himself or whomever yeah, Peterson sort of, uh, believes it to be. Uh, intrinsic part of your being, which I don't know what study would ever fucking, uh, you know, back that up uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it, it forced the sides. And so it's funny that the, that the conservatives, and again, this is just conservative problem, that, that conservatives only acknowledge and recognize the kind of force uh, that is carried out on behalf of popular majorities. 
uh, in, in the service of collective needs of a society. And, and they, they, they look at the force that's doled out by market forces, by the distribution, the unequal distribution of wealth created collectively by our society as not force, but just something that gosh darn it, people want to and should have, um, you know, and so that's, that's it. Yeah. Naturalizing that we're naturalizing the, uh, the collective production and yet a private appropriation of wealth in the society. Uh, and capitalism, if, if we're sort of sorry that we're getting to the punchline so late in the game here, but capitalism is a system where we produce things collectively. We need all of our labor uh, in order to, to, to have this society. And yet, uh, it's pri- the vast majority of it is privately appropriated, uh, i.e. stolen, if you sort of buy the, the heart of, or even a sort of wishy-washy version of Marx's labor theory of value. Um, and it's of course naturalized in, in Peterson's claim that only the left or only democratic collective majorities exert force, uh, capitalists, capitalists, private appropriation, theft of the wealth that's produced publicly is just his father getting a fucking knee replacement. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So it's like, and this is the, you know, I mean, you know, I made the less classy reference than capital uh, to uh, like some essay that Matt Brooding put on his blog, like in 2017 or something. But like, you know, the thing about the non-aggression principle, but I think the core of the point is the same here, right? You're just saying like, because anytime you make one of these arguments about forcing people to do things, you know, that you're coercing them, you know, whatever, it's like, well, that's when we're talking about disputes about property, right? Like who should get to control what resources, then all of this stuff about force and violence and coercion is always a red herring because um, there's no non-force option, right? It's, it's, it's not uh, like all of, you know, sure, like a letter from the IRS saying, you know, you owe us back taxes. There's an implicit threat of coercion there, but, you know, maybe explicit depending on how the letter's worded. But like there's also a threat of coercion and a no trespassing side. That like it's it's all it's all force, right? I mean that this this oh, yeah. like look, I mean yeah. If you're a uh, you know if you work in a factory, and you uh, and you decide to just like you know some of the stuff that you're making at the factory, you decide to just take some home with you one day, right? See what happens, right? Like there's there's going to be some force yeah. that's going to be applied to you, and of course what they say is that doesn't count. But the reason that they say it doesn't count is it's the kind of force that they approve of. It's the kind of force that their theory says is okay. It's like, fine. But like now we're having an argument about which kinds of force are okay, not about force or no force. Right, right. That's exactly right. I mean, the capitalist mode of production requires uh, these kind of uh, uh, liberal democratic uh, democracies, quote, quote unquote, bourgeois democratic democracies that naturalize the uh, property relations of, of capitalist production, which is that you go to work, you sell your labor power, you're producing things. Public uh, you know, production is absolutely required to pull this fucking thing off. And yet the, the vast majority of the goods of your produce are, uh, are privately appropriated by the uh, tippy top ownership uh, owning class. And uh, you know, the, what, what, are the, what, what does the capitalist uh, liberal democratic bourgeois capitalist society call that? They call that record profits. 
Yeah, yeah. They call that. Hey, let me do. Let me do my best uh, Rick Wolf impression. You know what they call that? They call that record profits. He's got this like very uh, Richard Wolf has this amazing delivery. But they do. You know, they, it's uh, record profits. The the economy is booming, and yet the working class is getting less and less of what's being uh, produced. Uh, you know, like it's true, you know? and that's that's uh, that's naturalized. And and this is again, we're getting to it. I'm glad we're coming full circle here. This is why political economy is so fucking critical. And you don't have to quote Marx chapter and verse to understand that ca- the capitalist mode of production requires a political system that naturalizes the uh, the the theft in a lot of ways uh, the unequal distribution of the uh, public publicly produced wealth that exists uh, now what you do with that is is a is a heated very difficult very complicated debate how do you rectify that situation and that's something that i think uh, you know the left has not wrestled with enough but the starting point is that you're naturalizing something that is absolutely um, grounded in in its own uh, type of very extremely violent force. <laughs> I mean, yeah, to no. say nothing, uh, starving to death and dying in a gutter is is one of the most awful things that that even a lot of um, sort of like say uh, Roman slave societies uh, would have sort of been appalled at. There's no responsibility for 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 anyone in this world. You're fucking alone, man. In a way that in a contradictory way, uh, a lot of societies that are sort of on the face of it worse uh, would, would be appalled at. Now they could also, you know, kill their slaves on a whim. So, uh, and I don't mean the American slave society. I'm not, I'm not conflating. I'm not, we're not talking about chattel slavery here. Uh, Greco Roman slavery was more complicated uh, legally and economically. But also, Uh, but also, you know, don't come at me on that. Not good. Yes. So uh, that was, that was, that was a, extremely evil and much worse in some ways but it was but yeah this this is in certain respects a relatively historically unique thing this thing that like i was just reading uh matt sitman's uh first column the gawker where he you know he quotes this at the beginning that margaret thatcher thing about there is no such thing as society right you know like yeah. like which is right. which is you know making it explicit right you know that's like uh mm. we live in a society no we don't Right, you know, you're uh, yeah. you're on your own, um, and, yeah. and and and, ch- and I should say that the sort of African slave trade, chattel slavery as we know it, was so much worse because it was driven by the rapacious nature of capitalist accumulation in el- other parts of the world, right? Uh, and so you know, anyway, uh, there's there's a lot well, of discussion to be had about about that. Uh, that uh, you know, anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. Historical specificity is is just it's everything, you know, and it, it, it'll it'll drive you crazy and it'll, it'll have you talking in circles, uh, but it's so crucial. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um so I do want to switch gears here at the end cuz uh we've been talking about a person, uh, a prominent commentator who um who who reduces uh, complex political questions to issues of individual moral virtue. And since we're done with that, I want to talk about something completely different. Um, so uh, that let's uh, for, for way the hell off of the opposite end of the spectrum from, uh, from people who do that. Uh, let's talk, uh, let's do something I don't like to do on the show. I usually actually kind of pride myself on not doing, but in this case, I think it's worth it. Uh, and uh, I actually cannot believe say the sentence, but just for a second, I want to talk about Jimmy Dore because I saw something that floored me the other day. 
So there's there are two parts to this. There's the Warren, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, Gunnels or Gunness or something, um, but who's who's like a, a who's like a Bernie Sanders like like uh, you know he's like staffer uh, I believe is uh, mm-hmm. is who this person yeah. is. So do he's we, an do academic. We, he's an academic and uh, sort of out of Vermont, a buddy buddy with Bernie from way back, and is one of his sort of uh, senior trusted advisors. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yep. All right. So Warren Gunnels um, says, you know, hashtag Medicare for all would have saved over 338,000 lives during the pandemic. Normalize that. So this is like a very unremarkable instance of what you would expect Warren Gunnels to uh, to be tweeting all the time as sort of a basic like Medicare for all is really important and we should fight for it. Uh, this is this is like exactly uh, exactly what you'd think he'd be tweeting. And then uh, in uh, in response to this, here I've got the second one. Uh, we have James Dore who uh, who responds as follows: Imagine if Bernie actually gave enough of a shit about this to actually use his leverage to implement it. What a disappointing cuck! So again, you know, we said we want to get, get away from talking about people who think all politics is about the quality of what's going on in your soul and don't understand structural analysis <laughs> and instead talk about this. So apropos uh, of nothing, apropos of nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, pretty, uh, if Bernie Sanders wanted to, I mean, maybe this is an uncharitable reading. Maybe you guys can help me out here. If Bernie Sanders wanted to, he could will Medicare for all into being, but he doesn't want to because he's a cuck. And that's why we don't have Medicare for all. I mean, this is honestly, um, and I got to go back here, you know, and, and, and talk a little bit about myself. I apologize. I apologize if that's self-indulgent. Um, but, you know, when when uh, when Michael rose uh, to his uh, Brooks, uh, rose to his uh, fame in the way that he did and his talent shone through, you know, as a fellow podcaster, you know, who, who was close with him intellectually, uh, sort of think, thought to myself, thank God. First of all, thank God there's somebody out who, who's like way more fucking talented than me uh, who can carry this torch. Uh, and he would go at door uh, regularly, of course, following his uh, his his old boss, Sam Cedar. Uh, and, and I thought that was an ma- amazing sort of a counter leverage to this kind of voluntaristic as someone raised uh, a shit that you see here. Uh, apropos of nothing, of course, and not, had nothing to do with what we're talking about, with Peterson. Uh, but, you know, and, 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 and then, and then, you know, of course, uh, Michael passes and, and I sort of leave the podcast sphere and. And, and that, and you know, and that you see a lot of this, you see this and you see, and, and again, uh, Brianna Joy Gray, who is okay sometimes, but very much team Jimmy here, uh, very much team Jimmy and Brianna and I have been sparring since she and I both sort of rose to any kind of notoriety. Of course, her, she, she rising way higher than I ever did. Uh, but it's this voluntaristic nonsense about the sort of, uh, uh, uh political, uh, you know, um, integrity of individuals without any awareness of their power and systemic capabilities inside the system. And don't get me wrong. I mean, do I like Bernie, you know, talking about, you know, Joe, this and pat him on the back and he's doing a fine job. No, you don't love it, but, but let's I mean, what leverage, Let's be honest with ourselves. What leverage does Bernie have right now, Ben? This is what shocks me about this tweet. Well, that, well, this, that's the amazing thing about this tweet, right? Because it's like I had, uh, I think I, I uh, quote tweeted this. And I just, it was a very mild quote tweet. I think I said like, 
I'm just fascinated by how Jimmy thinks any of this works. Um, and there were like angry Jimmy Dore fans and the re reply is being like, oh, so I suppose you think everything is fine and, you know, we could just count on the process to work. It's like, I don't think I said that, right? Like, I think I said, like, yeah. I, I don't think I even implied that. I think what I implied is that, like, this just doesn't make sense. This is not how any of this works, you know, that uh, that you, you can't... Um, like Bernie Sanders is a U.S. senator, but uh, there are also 99 of other U.S. senators, and the majority of them do not support Medicare for all. So what what's the scenario here? Like like spell it the out. The majority of them inside of his own party in his own party. <laughs> yeah, the majority exactly. Uh, yeah, the majority. Uh, and, and 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 you know and and so I, I what's the mechanism? And Twitter unfortunately is a platform that that is just absolutely uh, uh, rife for this stuff. And I'm not sure we can win this on the Twitter left. Uh, the the medium is the message. As a, no, I think there's a lot of than I said at one point. Yeah, yeah, um, it's Marshall McLeod. I, I've got him right here. You can, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, yeah, as Woody Allen joke. But anyway, uh, that's yeah, yeah. Uh, very problematic now. Uh, so uh, cancel, so, yeah. cancel, 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 cancel. <laughs> like, yeah, that's um, like given that most of the Democratic caucus and all of the Republican caucus is opposed to Medicare for all, right? Like the idea. That what like uh, Bernie Sanders is going to somehow use some parliamentary trick and he'll like hold something else up and they'll be like, oh shit, I guess now we have to do Medicare for all. One weird trick to implement <laughs> Medicare for all. <laughs> Senators like <the> hate him. <laughs> <laughs> like even if Bernie Sanders were president of the United States, as he would be at a slightly less hellish timeline, right? Like that doesn't mean we would just get Medicare for all right away right i mean like that that's uh like that there, there would be enormous resistance from vested interest to that and um you know and all of all of, you know there's some like really severe obstacles it'd still be an uphill struggle it would just be you know you obviously you'd have the presidential bully pulpit and various advantages and you know things you could you know work with while you were organizing that but like that still that still doesn't mean it would just automatically happen never mind is one senator right out of out of a hundred like, these guys are the these guys are the political equivalent of those like uh, NBA fan NBA Twitter fans who just put "la" in front of everything every time they want to own LeBron. Like, oh, look at LeBrick over here missing all his shots. Oh, look at LeGoat. You know, uh, look at uh, uh over here can't even win a championship. Doesn't come close to MJ. Like, it's just this like fast. facile just yeah. If it, look, look if I, if I were LeBron, I would have won that game. Oh, of course. Absolutely. I haven't gotten off the couch or touched my toes in 20 years, but, but, but let choke, but let choke over here. Gee, give me a fucking break. Uh, like, yeah. Uh, it's like, just it's like idiot. It's idiots. I mean, Medicare for all would not pass the house right now. It would actually go down like, um, by a really wide margin in the house right now. And if you've paid any attention to anything that's happened in politics in the last two years, right. You know, that a lot of, you know, relatively progressive legislation passes the House and goes nowhere in the Senate, you know, um, like grading on a curve. I'm not talking about Medicare for all here, right? You know, like, um, and so the idea that Bernie Sanders, you know, like, yeah, if, if he just, if he just understood, right? You know, like, he if, only if he understood, if he only just tried, harder, if he really cared enough, like deep in his heart, if he just, 
felt like, feelings like our friend uh freddie DeBoer. if they just if he just like opened up his chest into the care bear stare in the right direction in the right way uh he could really get this m for a thing uh, implemented and i want to just want to say I, I just can we just not disparage cucks it's 2022 listen 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 <laughs> listen is it uh, uh uh brandon brandon listen ben 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 brandon yes uh, just because I like to see my wife, Jane, bent over the side of a pool table in my second home in the rural Vermont <laughs> does not mean that I don't fight for Medicare for all. I just want to let me be clear. Yeah. No, that's this. What is Bernie, we wanna, what is Bernie enjoying the sight of his wife getting railed by another man have to do with uh, the fact that he doesn't want no, to implement? I, I, I'm, glad that, I'm glad that you're, I'm you're here to defend Is this a family honor. show, Ben? I've had a few years. I just want to be clear. I'm, I'm glad that you're here to defend the honor of the common cuck. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> that's, but like, this is just this is just incredible. It's like, look, the phrase Medicare for all would not be in Jimmy Dore's vocabulary, if not for Bernie Sanders. 100%. Right? He'd be a dick joke telling comedian, which by the way, I happen to enjoy the dick jokes quite a bit if they're told in the right way. Uh, I'm sure you can tell from my previous bit, but, uh, but yeah, I, none of this would be anything. And, and yet like, it's not to say that it's not a contradictory thing. I just want to know, like, again, and I hate to say this, Jesus, I'm sorry, Ben, for getting you in my yeah. on this again, but the, 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 the force, the vote stuff. Yeah. Uh, I just want to know what is their theory of power? What is the theory of power? And I think well, you know this, this is, is you know why, why where the politi- the absence of political economy come full circle to the nerd shit after defending cuckery here. Well, this is uh, <laughs> what, yeah uh, no, no no we we all acknowledge get you a man that can do both defensive uh, but, defensive cuckery, but like the uh, yeah. but yeah I I mean this is the incredible thing. I mean you mentioned Brianna Joy Gray, uh, she wrote a article for Current Affairs um, in support of of uh, a force the vote. Where she said, well, people say it wouldn't do anything uh, correctly. You know, people say it wouldn't do anything. But look, you know, that that's just like, you know, it would if you did it right. And I swear to God, I'm not making this up. One of her arguments was, well, if you combined it with a general strike. And it's like, yeah. And if you combined it with, like, aliens landing <laughs> on, the, on the roof of the you know Capitol building while the vote was happening, right? Then God knows what could happen. But Unfortunately, right now, we don't have an organized working class. We have a 6.7% rate of private sector unionization. So I don't know where this general strike that she wrote this article in December, this vote that they were supposed to force, would have been like by not, you know, like when Pelosi was being renominated speaker or whatever, the next month, right? So we're going to go from 6.7% unionization to, to a national general strike in a month. Yeah, I don't I don't take the theory of power very seriously. Um and listen, like most most uh, teenagers in America today uh, want to be a, a TikTok influencer. Uh, and, 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 and yet I'm a socialist and I'll die one and I fight fiercely for the ideals and the belief that deep down people really are on our side. But to just to imagine that the, the sort of neoliberal cultural hellscape that we all sort of inhabit right now could just up and, and produce the kind of it's just it's a trauma response, Ben. That's what it is. And, and trust me, I've been through it and I know you have. I've been through yeah. it personally, you know, through losses of people that are close to me and just sort of politically and the COVID stuff. And, and, and I'm sure they have too. And, and they're handling it by spouting sort of uh, yeah, a mystical uh, wannabe totally. nonsense on, on Twitter. Uh, I, I handled it by uh, buying a, a new guitar and uh, listening to a lot of Hendrix. Uh, well, you know, we all, we, a, you, know you, you drink a lot of scotch. I do as well. 
uh, we all have our coping mechanisms, but, uh, but that's, but that's what it is. This is a, this is a trauma response to the sudden disintegration of what seemed to be one of the most hopeful leftist upsurges in, in, in over a generation. And I get it. I do get it. Uh, but it's fucking nonsense. Don't like, don't like buy a guitar, drink some scotch. These are such healthy yeah. responses. Like, healthy responses. Hey, Become a cop. <laughs> go, go to a sex party. Bring your wife. Become an alcoholic. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. That's the uh, literally so, so be, anything. Else. Be, before we go back to Adam's views about cuckery, uh, let's uh, let's just uh, let's just ladies. Say, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like. Um, it just it's just amazing right because this is a guy who <laughs> and, and i get it um Hell. i get it right because you're right i mean i like psychologically i get it right that this is that the appeal of of jimmy Dore, i think more than anything is that you know he i mean is very unlike me in that like most of the time even when i am mad i don't seem very mad right you know jimmy Dore seems mad like 24 7 and that appeals to some people a lot of people even right because like they that's, feel that, that's that political style that's that political style that i opened the whole show with that i've become so incredibly disenchanted with it even some of the better uh sort of uh, proponents of our ideas sort of uh, uh delivers these days it's just sort of, sort of constant uh outrage that yeah, i think is just and, sort of and look a concentration a of, of all of our angst and who among whom among us is an angsty right now but what are we doing and why I, yeah, I, and, and look, I mean, as a matter of personality, I I sort of don't trust people who seem super duper angry constantly because I think, well, I mean, really, like, like, it, it, is it just constant or like, is this a little bit of a performance? That's my bias, yeah, but right. um, yeah. but like, whatever, I get it. Like, I get why a lot of people respond to that because they're angry and they're angry often for very good reasons, right? That it's not like they're angry arbitrarily, right? I mean, there are lots of things. The fact that we don't. The fact that you have to pay for healthcare in this country, that you know you can lose your health insurance because you piss off your boss is is obscene. You should be angry about it. But the idea that the person who's done more than anybody else to bring that Medicare for all, like the idea to public attention, the you know, the reason why again Jimmy Dore even knows what that phrase is, like that that is in his vocabulary at all. The guy who just lives, breathes, well, if you're a nation for why we don't have it, that that guy doesn't really care enough, that if he really cared, right, like if he really felt what I feel, then he would have like somehow tricked a Senate that's composed in its overwhelming majority of people who are opposed to Medicare for all into voting for Medicare for all. You know, I think that you maybe need a better theory of power. And uh, before uh, before we get any more discourses on cuckery, I think we're going to leave it there. Um, Adam, this has been way too long. We've got to do this again very soon. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, I shook the rust off. Hopefully, uh, there was a, a couple coherent thoughts there. Um, uh, but yeah, oh, happy to come back anytime. Thanks, everybody. Absolutely. Thanks, man. All right. Um. So uh, we are going to uh, to switch gears now for the last segment before we uh, we go to the uh, the post game uh, for uh, for for patrons. Uh, we are now joined not in the same place this time because uh, I am in Michigan 
and uh, Jen is still in Atlanta. She's going to be joining me here in a few days, uh, but uh, she uh, is in Atlanta right now. Um, Real heads will recognize uh, Shabazz, uh, the uh, the cat there, uh, who is uh, who's with her uh, with her in uh, in Atlanta. Jen, how's it going? That's going great. Going great. So much time with Shabazz. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, so, want to switch gears here? Uh, oh, hi, Jay Andrew. <laughs> Absolutely can't leave that out. Uh, So, uh, so Dr. Jennifer Burgess, professor of philosophy is, uh, has joined us uh, for our, uh, our philosophy segment. Uh, And uh, what we thought we'd do. I get the big chair this time. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, So, um, so what we, uh, what we've got, uh, what we've got right now. and I'm I'm not going to attempt to transition from somewhere we just were, but like is uh, that would be difficult. We, that would be difficult. Uh, so I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> but uh, but in any case, um, we are going to talk about utilitarianism, and uh, in particular, I just did a debate with this guy, Matthew, he has a blog called uh, Bentham's Bulldog, uh, who's very, very into uh, utilitarianism. Uh, yeah, we've got there uh, a post on his blog, which is actually the opening, his opening statement from the debate, um, which uh, is uh, basically the context here is that one of, you know, so utilitarianism, well, hell, Dr. Burgess, what's utilitarianism? Just for uh, for anybody who's watching who's not familiar with it. Um, the right action is the one that maximizes happiness and minimizes pain. Yeah. So uh, according to the utilitarian, all that matters. We all maximize them utiles. Right. All that matters in uh you know, in deciding whether you know an action is is uh, is right or wrong. Right, you know, done with the uh, the political economy part of the evening. We're just going to shamelessly do you know morality here. So we're uh, with, you know if we're thinking about the morality of actions, core utilitarianism, the the thing that um, uh, the thing that's the only consideration that's relevant is what the outcome is of of the action. So if the consequences are you know better than the consequences of anything else that you could have done uh, understood in terms of maximizing, you know, maximizing happiness or, you know, preference satisfaction. Yes. Uh, Utile is a unit of happiness, I should say. Uh, Then, uh, then that's the right thing to do. And so there are all these classical arguments against utilitarianism, uh, which we were, the debate was focused on one of them, uh, which is, you say, well, hold up. If all that matters is how good the consequences are of your actions, or if that's the only thing that matters when we're thinking about whether actions are, uh, are right or wrong, uh, which is if you, I should say, right, this is part of my interest in this, like why I did the, one of the reasons I did the debate, uh, that like, I think oftentimes people who, some people who agree with my, 
you know, political views sort of think, well, there's some people like libertarians maybe who disagree with this because they, they think that like, I don't know, we have certain property rights and damn the consequences of it. And they don't like that. So they think, well, maybe, you know, maybe utilitarianism becomes attractive because that's like a view that explains why we care so much about these bad consequences. And, you know, part of my agenda in all of this is to say, no, 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 guys, you don't have to go all the way there to sort of explain these, uh, you know, moral intuitions that, you know, we should, you know, damn your property rights. We should give everybody health care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can, ex- you can explain all of that without embracing utilitarianism, which you really shouldn't because utilitarianism has some super duper counterintuitive consequences, uh, is the claim. Can, that I, I, want- can I bust in here for a second? Bust away. So there, there are two types of Ari's having cuteness overload for me and the cat. Um, so there, the, you can divide up <laughs> utilitarianism in some different ways. One type is where you're focused on your intentions. You know, as long as what you intended, as long as what you did was the thing that you thought would bring about the best consequences, then you did the right thing. And on the other side, there's the one where if you turn out to be wrong, you did the wrong thing because you mm. were supposed to bring about the actual consequences. Mm. Thank you, Alana. Um, <clears throat> and so I saw somebody in the in the comments talking about whether it was what you thought would be the best consequences or what it was actually the best consequences. And there, these are kind of two opposing views. Yeah. So right. So. And even, you know, and I think which one you you get, like which one you think is better, like I think there are going to be some weird consequences to both of those possible views, right? You know, which you think has the best consequences or which will actually have it. Uh, Neil Sinababu, uh, who is a friend of mine, despite the fact that he's a utilitarian, uh, is uh, has a uh, has this like TED talk or TEDx or something. I don't, I don't remember exactly. I don't know what all the distinct different kinds are, but you can find it if you just look for Neil Sinababu, Ted, uh, and um, where he talks about this issue for utilitarianism. And he sort of concludes that, well, your action actually is right or wrong, depending on the consequences, but it's, um, but like for moral responsibility, maybe what matters is what you reasonably thought the consequences would be or something like that. Right. So he has these fun examples about like, if you imagine some, like a family of cannibals who just go around like killing and eating people. And if it's like Germany in the 1920s and the, the random people that they kill and eat are the people who would have become the leaders of the Nazi party, then it has really, really good consequences. But uh, you don't want to say this is like morally praiseworthy. That they uh, that they did this because it's just a weird accident that the consequences were so good, um, but in any case, um, yeah. So okay, so one of the things that has been brought up as a counter as a counterintuitive consequence of utilitarianism is that uh, there are all these scenarios where you could um, you could kill one person to save several other, you know, save several people by killing one person. Uh, so this is the trolley problem. We did a whole stream about this uh, in the past. Uh, you can look up, maybe we'll put the link to that in the, uh, in the description for this episode. 
But like one of the most extreme examples that's brought up in discussions of the trolley problem, uh, if you watched the uh, the episode of The Good Place, uh, I think called the trolley problem, uh, they uh, they use this in there, is the um, is cases about like organ harvesting. Like what if you could, what if you're a doctor and you know you're like you know just accept that you're the most amazing transplant surgeon ever, so you're hundred percent certain that the uh, that all of your transplants will take unrealistically right except that uh and um uh and you have that you just got to accept so many things <laughs> yes exactly um so okay um there's a healthy patient who's come in for a checkup who as luck would have it is a perfect match with five people who are all going to die if they don't get transplants one of them needs a heart one of them needs a liver one of them needs a spleen. they all need different things they all need different things and he's all got them Two of them could need a kidney since, you know, we've all yeah, got there you go. Yeah. So um, they go, okay, well, look, we could just kill this guy and harvest his organs and uh, and save these five people. So the consequences are way better than just than not killing him. Because if you don't kill him, there's, well, there's one innocent person who will live if you do that. But there are five who will live if you, uh, if you do kill him and harvest his organs. Nevertheless... You know, most of us think that this would be pretty bad, and that if you've got a moral theory that says it would be fine, you know, you you have some reason to reconsider that moral theory. And so this is what we're having this debate about. So we're we're already running pretty late. We want to go to the post game, so we'll do this uh, with brevity. Um, but uh, but we let's, don't let's do anything with brevity. Yeah, we'll try. All right, so let's uh, let's watch. Uh, Jake, do we have the clip? Well, so first objection is that everything that we think of as a right is reducible to utility considerations. For example, we think that people have the right to life, which obviously makes people's lives better. We think people have the right not to let other people enter their house, but we don't think that they have the right not to let other people look at their house. The only difference between shooting bullets at people and shooting sound waves at people, i.e. making noise, is that one causes a lot of harm and the other one does not. Additionally, if the things that we currently don't think of as rights began to maximize the utility to be enshrined as rights, we would think that they should be recognized as rights. For example, we don't think that it's a violation of rights to look at people, but if every time we looked at people, we were looked at, we experienced terrific suffering, then we would begin to think that it was a rights violation to look at people. All right. Um, Healthy guy is a Beatles fan. Live <laughs> transplant needing guys, Rolling Stones fans. Okay, I think I've just switched sides in this uh, in this debate given <laughs> this new information. Uh, but in any case, um, so I think what this guy was saying very quickly yeah. Yeah. is that, uh, rights, the things that we consider to be rights, we, uh, we like those things because they maximize the utiles. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I got from that. No, I think that is exactly what he's saying, right? He's saying, look, we, we think that, uh, it's not okay to shoot bullets at people. Uh, but it is okay to to send sound waves into their ears without their consent. Um, so so one, one thing I was wondering, is he talking about each individual's person's rights or right X as a whole? Well, it seems, I guess, right X as a whole, because he's saying like, well, you have a right not to be shot. You don't have a right not to have sound waves impact your ear. Uh, without, you know, your prior written consent. In or whatever. general, there is a right to not be shot. 
I which think you have and I have. So are we talking about the individual's rights or the right as a whole? Because it yep. doesn't seem like respecting the rights in every single case will maximize utility. Well, no, it won't. But I think his claim is going to be that a reason we get confused into thinking that you have a right in every specific case is that we know somehow that, uh, and, you know, it's more realistic in some cases than others, that we sort of know that the consequences will be better if we acknowledge a sort of general right to do these things. And that leads us to mistakenly think that even if the consequences weren't better, uh, we would uh, we would all have these these rights. And there's a lot you could say about this uh, sound wave bullet comparison uh, because he did um, because he did publish this opening statement on his blog, and there's something very wrong with me. So I spent way too much time on this. I actually wrote up a whole response to it uh, that uh, you know put it and, and put it on Medium because uh, there's a lot about this that I didn't have time to get to in the debate because it's like, as you could, I think, get some sense of uh, from um, from watching that little clip. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on very quickly here, right? That was the first of, of many, many, many points. And so I'd sort of, every time it was my turn to talk, I'd sort of pick a few and uh, and say some stuff about them. But, um, but in any case, so you could read that if you really want to go into the nitty gritty of what I think some of the disanalogies are, you know, between talking to somebody and shooting them, uh, of which I think there are many. But, uh, <laughs> but like, I, I think what you just said really gets to the point. I mean, maybe, maybe if, if we, if you just unpack this a little bit, we can kind of end on this because, because I think that you just put your finger on like the essential problem with this, which is like, okay, if you're trying to see, if if you're sort of looking at our intuitive reaction to these things. And I mean, look, he's surely right that the fact that like bullets end your life and noise typically doesn't has something to do with uh, with why we think that um, we have more rights against bullets than against sound waves. Um, but which is not, by the way, to say that we have no rights against sound waves, because there are I mean, even like most of us think it's like right that societies will have like noise laws and stuff like that. But whatever. Um, but so he's right about that but like if you're saying okay well we have this intuitive reaction to these two cases and we're trying to examine this moral intuition that we all have about this and we're trying to see where it comes from and his hypothesis is that well where it comes from is that we're sort of maybe very quickly and subconsciously doing like a utility calculation that we all realize on some level that the consequences will be better if we have rules against shooting people and, uh, and you know, it doesn't matter so much for the consequences if we have rules against, you know, playing music or talking. Um, but then you could say, you know, you could do the, the meme with Thor, right? You know, but is it, right? You know, like, like is, that, is that where this intuition comes from, really? Um, and say, well, not necessarily. And I mean, it seems like the way to test that is kind of what you just said, right? That say, well, okay, but this isn't going to get you, like the utility calculation is not going to work out that way in every single case. No, I mean, we have a right to life, but the utility calculations would work out better in a whole bunch of cases if we killed some people. Hitler, Ted Bundy, you know. Yeah. 
recognizing and and respecting their right to life has caused you the utiles to go shooting downwards yeah and maybe in those cases you could make a case <laughs> you know you could make a case for it but uh but like you know i mean you can even think about like the innocent until proven guilty standard right it's not at all clear to me that the utiles are necessarily well served by that on a consistent basis i mean that if you um like if if you're you know the sort of classic justification for it you know blackstone's ratio it's better for 10 guilty people to go free than one innocent person to be in prison it's like well okay but are the consequences always going to work out well from that i mean like like what I mean, tell me more about what those ten guilty people are going to do, right? Like, the, the, uh, once they get, you know, once they get out, right? That that could the consequences could be really bad. But if you if you think that's right, that seems to be best explained by saying that innocent people have a right against being imprisoned that's so important that you can't violate it, even if the consequences might actually be better sometimes. See, I was thinking about this, so you know the the uh, the town. You're the sheriff in the town, and they're it's a racially volatile town and we have the race riots and whatever. And the sheriff's like, well, I can hang this innocent man, you know, so sad for him, but. You'll prevent uh, the riot and lots of people would have died. uh, Yeah. And, and most of us are like, no, you shouldn't do that. Well, the thing is, if this is the kind of town where this happens all the time, and every time the sheriff hangs an innocent person. So you can make a utilitarian argument that actually doesn't work out well. You're better off for the sheriff to continue to hang the innocent person because you are less likely to be the one who gets is it hanged or hung. I you are, actually, you are, I think it's actually hanged. You're less likely to be the one to get hanged than you are to be one of the few who get killed. So we've got this right uh, as an innocent person to not be killed, but yet it doesn't maximize utility. Yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. And similarly, you know, I think most, you know, I think when you start thinking about organ harvesting uh, examples, right? Most of us think that the, uh, that even though, you know, you have a right not to be killed for, you know, be cut up for your organs, uh, like, in certain cases that, you know, might not maximize utility. Now utilitarians will make all sorts of arguments about how well, look, if word spreads, then, uh, then, you know, people won't go in for checkups anymore because they'll be afraid of, uh, I mean, that seems reasonable. No, no, no. I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing with the premise there. Right. You know, that, I, the, I was going to end up in an ice bath if I went in to, you know, get some blood work done. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but but the question is, okay, but what if we construct the case so that, like, we actually, it's actually reasonable to think you're going to get away with it and uh, where it's not going to spread? Um, and, you know, we could fiddle with the details however you want. But, I mean, whatever you need to do, this is all happening after a, a spaceship has crash landed on some planet, blah, 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 right? Whatever you need to do to work it out in your head so you believe that there aren't going to be these long term bad consequences. See how you feel about that. And if you're, still have the same intuitive response to that, that might be an indication that your intuition about rights really isn't stemming from from a utility calculation, that even if it didn't work out, you know, maybe it usually works out such that respecting rights leads to good consequences, but even if it didn't, 
right? You wouldn't think yeah, that. Yeah, in the racially volatile town situation, I am better off by having my rights ignored. Yeah, and yet. All right. Uh, so, yeah. and yet. All right. Uh, I saw somebody in the chat talking about rule utilitarianisms. There's a whole further discussion we could have about this, but that is going to have to wait until some future philosophy segment since we're oh, running, darn. We are, uh, we are running way over time tonight. So we are still going to do at least a short uh, post game for patrons. Um, we are going to be joined by our uh, prodigal producer, uh, Kale, uh, Kale Brooks, uh, for that, uh, as well as uh, as well as by our uh, current producer, Jake Abbott, and uh, our graphic designer. Producers all the way down. I know, right? Um, and uh, yeah, this is like this is like being the the drummer for Spinal Tap, you know, just just runs through, you know, the uh, the GTA producers. But uh, in any case, um, so um, so that should be a lot of fun. Uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna look at a much more eccentric Jordan Peterson clip than what we watched uh, during the uh, during the main show, among other things. So uh, if you are not yet a patron. Uh, that is patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. Uh, and for five bucks a month, you get access to all those post games uh, after regular episodes, Discord server, uh, many other good things. Um, most, you know, access to that uh, bonus episode we did with uh, with Jason Ture that we showed a clip of earlier and lots of other stuff, but most importantly, our undying love and appreciation for helping us to keep this going. So uh, we're going to go as to to be seen by an audience of millions. That's right. That's right. Keeping keeping Shabazz shiny with all that good cat food. Uh, so uh, we are uh, we're going to go to uh, we're going to go to the post game. If you are a patron, you should already have that uh, that email. Uh, and I will see people there in uh, in just a minute. Uh, Team Snoopy forever. Left is best. <laughs>